Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Mr. Christopher Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast, Mr. Brandon Howard. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm good. The The last time we talked, uh, Randy Orton was, was the WWE World Champion. It was, a, it was a totally different world than the one we live in now, wasn't it? Well, you know, and you were going off to wrestle a few matches. Did you win your matches? Did you take home those winner's purses? Uh, I was going to wrestle Mark House. Was that, was that right before that was going to happen? I wrestled Mark House. I didn't win. Uh, we went to five-minute overtime, and uh, he won. He, he retained the IWF heavyweight title. And then I wrestled, I think the next day I wrestled Kevin Bennett at ESW, and I busted my head open. Here's an interesting story. I bled. Um, there's there's gifts of it on uh, farmer underscore thirst if you want to see me bleed and then, so I he gave me a moonsault like he did a moonsault off the apron uh, onto me and his leg or something hit the back of my head I ended up bleeding I didn't realize I was bleeding for the first few minutes I I knew there was blood and I saw blood on him and I thought oh he's bleeding and uh, then I realized oh no it's got to be from when he did moonsault onto me so I. So I got, and it was on the back of my head, so I just like ran my hand through the, the back of my head, and I just looked at my hand, and it was just covered in blood. So I, so of course, what you do when you got your hands covered in blood is you wipe your hands off across your chest, and it was, it was a very fun moment. Did you spell out die or anything cool? Oh no, I, oh, it's a, I'll have to do that next time. That's yeah. a good idea. Now in in New York, you do not have to stop a wrestling match due to blood, correct? No, uh, I think you're supposed to. When I've talked to the to the inspectors for the commission i think they want you to i don't know if it's in the handbook because there's a handbook with all their rules but i i think they want you to stop the match immediately but like i've never seen it it happen you know the only time i've ever heard of the commission actually stopping a match is when actually when when mark house was was wrestling a a woman uh, in new york city i think SummerSlam weekend Um, as a a female and they declared intergender matches to be banned Right, which there's nothing in the handbook about that, but this is, I mean, that's not exactly what people are listening to this for. Just <laughs> to talk on the New York State Letter Commission handbook, but well, there's no you know, rule against that. Yeah, and, and to be fair, Mark Mark was my old uh, tag team partner, so yeah. I, I do feel an affinity for this story. And, you know, when I asked the New York State Commission to give me all the records from 
2010 through 2015 of shows that were promoted by the WWE, um, just in kind of a blind attempt to see what, what information would show up from NISAC. And what was interesting about it is I got 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. And for 2015, they gave me two documents. They gave me one show uh, in, I think, Albany, and then one show at, at Madison Square Garden. That was it. And then they said, we've given you all the documents. And so I appealed to them and I said, no, you didn't. You, you clearly didn't give me all the documents. And I listed like 23 shows you that I them a cage match link of every show that, that we I, ran. In, in I, New York. <laughs> I did the, my own work to be like, here it is. I'm summarizing it. You don't have to click on a website. I'm yeah. listing the actual events. And they responded back to me. Uh, first, they ignored me. And then I wrote them back and said, well, you, you forgot to reply, reply to my appeal within 10 days. Like you're legally re required. They must've just forgot them. Yeah. And so then they said, we checked and there's no more. And I said, that is complete lunacy because this is 2015. This was the year that uh, SummerSlam ran three times at the Barclay Center in a row. Right. Right. I was like, I found a New York Times article because that was the year Jon Stewart w showed up right after The Daily Show ended. And I was like, it was covered in The New York Times. It's internationally broadcast. There's absolutely no way that there's no records about this event unless either A, NISAC has completely shirk their duties and never actually did any in the inspector's reports or B nice act has already destroyed the records from less than two years ago. And again, has shirked their duties and is not doing records retention the way they should. And maybe uh, they didn't go to those events. Cause I know the inspectors, at least when it comes to indie wrestling, don't go to every event. Like they go to about half of the events. Yeah. So but it was three consecutive shows in Barclays. I, I find it impossible yeah. to believe that they didn't have someone there. And you, you, that is true. There's not an inspector at every event, but only two events. Plus, there has to, you have to uh, file this form that says that you're going to run a show. And uh, that form at least shows up a bunch of times where people say, I'm going to run a show on this date. And then if they change the date or they delete the show, they have to send file another form saying, I stopped doing that. The mm -hmm. only explanation I have is that WWE is not actually the licensed promoter in, in New York State. It's Event Services Incorporated, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of WWE. And so perhaps there's something about uh, it's I didn't ask for event services data, even though I did ask for that. Eventually, uh, they, they, they didn't pull it the first time. And I have a hard time believing they actually went back and checked all their records. Instead, they just figured they could tell me they didn't find anything and make me go away. But I will not go away. Uh, and all this was brought up because uh, in the inspector's reports, as you and I went through them, there's a whole story about how Bray Wyatt gets smashed open in one of the matches and how the inspector writes how they, they quickly came to a conclusion in the match not long afterwards. And I think Ric Flair busted him open or something, like punched him in the eye. Yeah, Ric Flair came to the ring or something like that. There's something amusing in those, in those, uh, all those documents that you put out. Yeah, but... Um. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, Jinder Mahal... <laughs> Uh, new WWE champion, uh, which is it made everyone an overnight India expert, which uh, must be thrilling for those uh, subcontinent studies majors who have who have who have dedicated their life to this. It's so good to see so many people doing the adequate research and understanding of the business, uh, you know, with the the careful and nuanced understanding of of how decisions are being made. Would you say that accurately describes Twitter over the last two weeks? I don't know. I, well, to be honest, I mute a lot of people on Twitter. I don't block people. I, it's 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 gotten out of control the number of people that I mute on Twitter. Like you can look at your mute list and it's 
it's probably in the hundreds. So so maybe I'm just I've got a lot of the um, the less intelligent comments muted out. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've seen them and I haven't. <laughs> do you, do you mute it because you you post one of your graphs? And it has the business data over time, and then people reply to you with just ridiculous comments, and you're just like, I can't deal with them. I will. What's the criteria for me muting people? I will. I will mute them if they, if they, I would say, you know, mansplain something to me. If they explain something to me that like I already know, that will probably irritate me, and I might mute you because of that. Or if they just make some, I don't know, unnecessary smart-ass comment, I will often mute people. Um, yeah. The only people I usually mute are people that, like, tag me in photos for no reason at all, that it's just they want some publicity of some sort. Or, I get that. You get that. I get that occasionally. And then the you other got, one... You've got, you got almost 5,000 followers or something. I, you're, you're, you're in the big time, so... 4,988, yeah. technically, but who's counting? Uh, <laughs> and then the other one is, is when I get porn bots or whatever that follow me, I always block those. Oh, yeah. That's the yeah. only, only other one, but uh, anyhow... But yes, it's been an interesting week just with all the the India stuff, and um, uh, I think two weeks ago we talked a little bit about a, a speech that George Berrios gave um, at a different forum. I think it might have been the Needham Forum with uh, uh, yeah. Laura Martin, and we talked a little bit about the things, and I, I didn't think it was necessarily enormously newsworthy as much as it was the general, hey, it looks like they've really taken a new tone. It's in conjunction with the business summit. They've moved on. Um, there was another event a couple days later. And I, I was, I had various fatigue where I was just like, I can't listen to this guy give his 30 minute stump speech again, where he I goes through the slides. All, and if we had listened, so this happened, the speech that you're talking about, that we're going to talk about, um, happened on May, a couple 22nd, months ago. 22nd, yeah, May 22nd. May 22nd. And if we had listened to it promptly, we would have already known that at, at that time that ICW in progress, uh, apparently have written deals, signed deals with, with WB of some sort. We don't know what the terms are, um, but we'll get to that. Yeah, so it's the 45th annual J.P. Morgan Global Technology Media and Telecom Conference, and uh, George Berrios went, and I, I, I always kick myself because it's like history repeats itself. If you look, look at my blog, you'll see that I've covered this same conference that he's spoken at for four or five years. And every year, it's always interesting, and there's always something about it that like, I, I make a big deal about covering. And for whatever reason, this year, I was just like, ah, what, what's the point? He's just going to say the same stuff. And when what was interesting was he did a, a three-minute stump speech to open it really fast, hit on the, the numbers that um, – some numbers that he said that I think got miscommunicated uh, in the Observer this week, um, partially through – what I was saying, and more through the fact that people just don't bother to source their data, repeat their data, and listen to the data firsthand. No, and, yeah, people people don't go to the original source. They just read whoever reported it, and they rely on that person rather than you know. Even though we link, hey, here's here's where the real talk is. You can check it out for yourself. They just you know scoop it right off the top. So so there was a point in the opening where he said, from a consumption standpoint, on traditional TV. India is our largest market. Number two market is the U.S. And number three market is South Africa in terms of average viewers. And he said the same thing at the business presentation where he said India has whatever the number was of millions of people watching Raw. Number two is the U.S. And number three is South Africa because they watch a lot of SmackDown. And it was really clear and it was straightforward. But for whatever reason, that got turned into India is our biggest market because there's so many social media followers and then the U.S. and then South Africa. 
And I honestly believe that if you were to say, okay, it's social media followers and consumption, South Africa is definitely not number three. It's only big on TV. So I, I think there was confusion about all of that stuff. Um, yeah. It, it just it was just one of those things where I was just like, ah, I think I think people are not really listening to what what he's saying, and they're just taking a tweet. Maybe where I said, hey, it's a little confusing because uh, he talks so fast sometimes. Uh, but then what was interesting is the next 30 minutes of this conversation was with a guy named David Karnovsky. Uh, Karnovsky. Yeah, Karnovsky. Yeah. Karnov was a game for the um, NES uh, that many people might remember of oh. my age. Um, but a Russian circus performer, actually. So kind of a, really? a, a proto-Rusev, if you will. Yeah. I had a Nintendo when I played that. Yeah, it's not a very popular game. It's not a very good game either. But, uh, you know, if you're a big Karnev fan, uh, make sure you tweet me. Um, so it was interesting because, of course, they started off by saying, where's your target? Uh, how are you to target? And he gives the story about, we think, 3 to 4 million. Uh, Netflix one time said 60 to 80. And they're only at, after eight years, they're only like 80% to 60. Hey, we're over 52% uh, at towards 3 million. And that's only three years in. So we're doing great. And... The, the biggest difference to me is that first million, I don't think there was anyone in wrestling who really didn't think they could, couldn't could get a million people to sign up for this service, considering they could get a million people to buy WrestleMania. Uh, I, I think if, for a worldwide service, everyone thought they could hit a million who wasn't like delusional. But the question is, can they hit two million and can they even hit two and a half million on a steady basis? I think that's a very different question. Yeah, um, it's hard to remember what everybody thought. I remember there's you know a lot of speculation at the time. There's a lot of just kind of throwing darts out there that uh, how many how many subscribers you know what what's the, the market potential for the WWE network? Um, I wrote a first. Yeah, I wrote a piece for What Culture, and in it actually it might have even been for Wrestling Observer. In it, I'd made a throwaway line where I guessed how many people would be uh, a, a subscriber as of WrestleMania, and I forgot about it completely. I think it was Joe Lanza from Voices of Wrestling. Uh, out of the blue, one day goes, Mookie got it right, and he tweeted me, and, <laughs> and I had guessed something like, I think they'll do about six hundred and fifty thousand people for WrestleMania, and the the real number was six six seven two eighty seven, and so I was like, wow, that was really close <laughs> for the time, not having you know any context, any number for us to go off of. Um, and it was just a throwaway line where I think I had guessed what the full year number was, and then I just said, okay, well, we'll go this many weeks and ramp up or something. And so I wouldn't say I was really a savant in it as much as it was just a really good lucky guess. But I always go back to those things when I say people are like, well, who could have guessed what their TV deal would have been or who could have guessed what subs were? I was like, I don't know if it was as hard as people sometimes make it out to be because other there were those of us who seemed to be not that far off a lot of the time. And if anything, they grew slower than uh, I think most of us thought they could do by the end of year one. Um, yeah, I remember there, there was some speculation that maybe they'll hit a million already after WrestleMania. But it was... And that's why their stock plummeted the day after WrestleMania, because people thought they would hit a million. You know, what was amazing about that was how many people actually bought it on traditional pay-per-view. And at the time, if they had been able to really talk about that number in, a, in more context, it would have it would have done them great, great good. But they really didn't have a great feel at the time. Uh, which which speaks a lot to their continued narrative, which is, you know, this is so much better than pay-per-view because we get data. 
about the consumer in real time. This isn't, as he said, the 1% of homes that you get through Nielsen. We're talking about minute-by-minute, consumer-by-consumer, creating cohorts, creating viewership clusters, and understanding these people. And, And there's something to be said about their passion for data analytics that has kind of boomed. Uh, I would say it's interesting to see they started the network and then started the data analytics team, and it wasn't the other way around. And that, in my mind, says a lot about kind of the planning and the execution of this and how I think in retrospect it's easy to kind of put things in a line and make a nice clean narrative. But it's really been fits and starts and fired heads and and different different twists on the story uh, throughout the years. And about analytics, I was just noticing, I don't know how it came up earlier today, I was noticing that... You know, back in 2014, this was probably, I guess it would be after the, the network had launched, they, they announced that they had promoted Tandy O'Donoghue mm-hmm. to, to be executive vice president of analytics and something else, whatever her title is. So so I take it like she's the one in, in charge of this analytics department that Barrios. I, I believe so. And then there's, there's a Pamela who I think might work for her. And this Tandy's a funny name because in the whole Ed Nordholm saga with the broken mat oh that's how it came up yeah i think tandy is the person he emailed which again i was yes. kind of like was i don't really know yeah. if the head of analytics is the person you want to email maybe she's just got you know experience in, in some other I don't know, some other department in her previous you know job title or whatever or yeah. or their friends from some other conference yeah. that they met up at but yeah I was just very amused where I was like, that's kind of like going to the hot dog vendor in the uh, the stadium and being like, I've got a really special deal for this guy for, for this tour or something. Yeah. But yeah, and that's a great analogy, by the way. Um, so so at one point, uh, you know, I, I wrote up all I comment. I wrote up all the document. I transcribed what he said. It took me forever to do all that. But it was interesting because you, you commented on a lot of the, the things that he said and just kind of how remarkable it was where. It felt like this wasn't Berrios, the rehearsed corporate guy, as much as it was Berrios, the person in a meeting leading his team, explaining the strategies that he believed in. Yeah, and, this is a, like I said, I said I think to you earlier. There's often these these talks, or even the the conference call, you know, talks. It just feels like a sales pitch, and you know, they're, they're doing everything they can to to make WWE look like this amazing company, and they they want to sell. You know, you know, shares to investors, uh, but this was, you know, like like you just said, it was a few minutes of you know opening remarks, and then like this is just a guy, you know, who's a CFO for a billion dollar company sitting back and talking about, you know, what his company is like and what the future of media is like. Right? And what I appreciate about it was that the analyst who asked him the questions actually asked a few hard questions. Yeah, he and, knew what he was talking about. He brought up Ring of Honor and things like that. Yeah, he called them out and said, you guys get very little money for per viewer or per viewer hour compared to major sports leagues. Don't, you know, don't say that that's not true. <laughs> right, um, and, and a, lot, a lot of times it's, you know, the, the person you know, hosting him and asking the questions, you know, doesn't have a really good handle on WWE business or the, or the wrestling business. And you get a lot of softball questions, or, or it's it's a media person who's you know really excited about OTT technology, but doesn't really know that much about wrestling. So you get a lot of easy questions, and wow, it's, you guys are doing such a great job, kind of stuff. Yeah, so it was impressive. I I, I really give it to the analysts there. Um, at one point, George says, "Today I can do that," meaning uh, talking about how you deliver video. 
uh, by putting a video, a piece of video in any broadband-enabled home in the world and monetize it either through advertising or monetize it through subscription direct-to-consumer. And he was comparing that to his old life where he said, well, if we created a piece of video, the only way to get it to a fan was we had to partner with a network. We had to create multiple partnerships to reach globally in a capacity-constrained environment because of the linear television, 24 hours, and then we, if we got that working, we'd deliver that video. And I think maybe that's more accurate to say 15 years ago that's how it was. The internet was around seven years ago, so I don't know if it's completely true to pretend that, you know, they didn't have a very strong web presence at the time. Um, but it's interesting to see how his his vision has really gone to direct-to-consumer. I can get this video anywhere. The pipe is just another way, just like a TV set is, to get my product out there. And you were you were commenting on, on how you, you yeah. thought this was similar to other wrestling groups, that anyone well, <laughs> can get to a broadband-enabled home. Yeah, well, I think the, the difference that we experience now that we didn't have some time ago is that it's not just the Internet, but it's that we can stream video pretty easily. You know, back, you know, back in the day, we, you know, to, the, the, the idea of playing a video was like, okay, I'm going to have to sit here and download it for like two hours, and then once I download it, all right, it's only going to be like five minutes long or something like that, you know, back in the days of dial-up or whatever. Yeah, definitely in the Napster days or the Kazaa days of the yeah. uh, early 2000s. But now that we've got social media and, we, and everybody, for the most part, who's on the internet is on broadband, I feel that it's really enabled not just WWE, but any pro, you know, pro wrestling promotion in the world to get a piece of a video out there. And to and, and now the apparatuses are, are there where, well, they were uh, with, with YouTube where you could monetize it through AVOD and, and even with you know the the bottom having fallen out on YouTube or whatever is going on there. You can there's still you can still do SVOD. You can still have you know all these indie promotions have their on-demand services, and that's that's really changed the way indie wrestling is. And this you know this is something I experienced firsthand. And you think about ten years ago, we were so or even like fifteen years ago. Like I, I started indie wrestling about 2003. And then when I started, we were so not connected. Like we were, the idea of even being aware of other indie promotions was other indie promotions was a stretch. Like so, you were in Rochester at the time, and like so, we were Empire State Wrestling in, in the Buffalo area, and like we vaguely knew about something called RPW. And after a while, I think we we you know found the Rock City Wrestling website that I think you, that's the promotion you were a part of. And yeah, it, it was very tough, and it was funny because <laughs> at the time, you know, we both were running in feds that were sometimes licensed, sometimes not licensed. And the challenges with the commission really cared. Yeah, and it was funny because you'd almost have to run like out outlaw shows where you know it was sometimes tough to advertise the show, to, and it was like you would have to put it on your MySpace page, and then you know people would shut each other down and whatnot. So it, it's really different how much social media has evolved, um, yeah. and made it easy to, like you say, advertise and create websites and create a buzz and. You know, put gifts up. I remember just even trying to find video storage back in the early days of the web was such a pain where, you know, I could edit something cool at college, but then I couldn't find anywhere I could upload it for free and, and host it. it. Yeah. So it's, it's, and it's not just a thing like for fans. Obviously, fans can, can experience this. And, okay, I can watch wrestling from just about any place in the world. And not to mention, I don't have to tape trade for it or buy a DVD or a videotape of it off the Internet. And that's the thing that I bring up to, to my wrestling students a lot is like, you have no excuse now. Like, I, I grew up, man, I grew up back in the day in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s where I had to buy all these tapes off of the internet and wait for them to be shipped to my home. And, and now you can just, you can go home later tonight and you can type in whatever match you can imagine and you're probably going to find it on YouTube. Um, and Did not you? just that, 
Did you say something on, on Twitter the other day about how you were watching YouTube and then you became convinced that the video you were watching on YouTube had come from a comp tape that you oh, had made? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so I was oh, – what, what was I watching? I don't remember Like exactly. a Japanese tape of some sort, I so, think it was. Yeah. So back in the day, I used to make like these best of two, best of Pro Wrestling 2000, 2001, 2002. I did, those years I did. And, and I was watching it. And I, and I think like sometimes oh, – this, really, this is really deep. But like you can – when you would make a comp – so you'd make a like a best of comp, and it wouldn't be obviously it wouldn't be from the same native. You know, all these matches wouldn't be from the same professionally done tape. They would be from you know, there'd be a compilation of, of matches from other tapes. And when the edit would happen, like when one match would end and you would start recording on the next match, uh, for about five seconds you would see like this weird rainbow purple, you know, strip that would go through the picture. And I'm thinking, this that might be because this is from a comp and, and if it's from a comp it's not a comp that I did so it's, it's possible that this is like from one of my best of 2001 tapes or something like that yeah <laughs> beautiful yeah, um, anyway, as, as I was saying though, it, it's, it's, social media has been so important to even to wrestlers now where again like so I, I, I do this wrestling school now and I you know once people are trained up and like they're ready to have matches I'm like alright go, go start contacting promoters and it's, it's so easy now because everything's on Facebook every promotion has a Facebook page it's in that way, it's very easy to contact these promoters. Whereas, like I said, you know, when I started, like we were barely even aware that these other promotions were out there, or, and, and if we were aware of them, we were pretty clueless about how to contact them or approach them for bookings. Absolutely. But anyway, we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's very true. Um, you know, one thing that that they talk a lot about, speaking of footage, is just the enormous amount of footage that the WWE library had, and so that. You do this, this transcript, which everybody can check out on your blog of this this talk from George Barrios. But you, you took out this this story that he told about his brother-in-law, which I think was very touching. You did not transcribe that. <laughs> I had no interest in this story. I, George George Barrios had a tear in his eye because he was talking to his his brother's brother-in-law. I think actually. I think it's about... his wife's brother's brother. Okay. No, no, that <laughs> wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> I don't know. So someone who's tangentially related to him. He, he was, you know, you know, some family get together or something, and, and he, he's meeting this person, I guess, like the first time or something. And, you know, he finds out that, oh, his kids, kids are really into wrestling or something like that. He talks about the old days of wrestling, and he starts talk, talking about, you know, you know, wrestling in the 90s, and then he eventually finds out, oh, oh he's a current fan. And, uh, and he's, he finds out that he's a network subscriber, and his kids are really into Shinsuke Nakamura. And, uh, George Barrios was very touched by this. He said they were having burgers and beer. And he had a tear in his eye because he was, you know, talking to a, a real person who was, you know, really engaging his content. It was beautiful. He talked about, they asked him, did you have any epiphanies or moments where you were able to learn something about your fan base using the network? And he said, yeah, there were some uh, tactical elements along the way. Early on on the network, we saw consumption of a different type of talent. And we'd talk internally about that, and we'd give the Vince and the creative team, and I think there were decisions made about what talent we might bring back for events and so on based on that. That's at the tactical level. And um, I, I know people would say, well, what are they talking about? He, in a different interview, said it was Sting. He just straight up said, we, we saw people watching a lot of Sting things. We brought Sting back. I also think that Goldberg might have also popped on the network, and that might have helped them decide that Goldberg was going to be a commodity similar to Sting. Well, well Goldberg's DVD sold really well, right? Yeah. And um, and I think they, they did say on a, on a quarterly conference call, this is where the remember that line where we, yeah, we took Sting out of obscurity because yeah. we saw that the analytics <laughs> around Sting were doing so well. But um, 
And then they, they went on to talk about their hours per subscriber consumption at 200 hours a year and that's 30 minutes a day and it's lumpy and it's more than, you know, obviously people like the pay-per-views the most and only 25% of the consumption per subscriber were the live specials. And that, that, that's news to me. I, think. I, I just can't get my, my head around all of this sometimes. And I always wonder, is it, because the way they back into that is that they say, well, we only made 40 to 50 hours of new content, so that's why, you know, if they watch 200 hours, then they're clearly, it's only 25%. What they don't actually say in that is, of course, what if you watch the same content twice? So what if I watch the pay-per-view? I give my sign-in ID to my friend. My friend watches the pay-per-view. And now, both watching it live simultaneously. Or or if we don't, you know, if I watch it a day later, as I often do. and he well, might... you're not watching it live. I think what, what he's referring to here is... is... Well, only about 25% of total consumption per subscriber were the live specials. And it well, doesn't, yeah, he, I think what he's, he's doing is he's saying, we only produce 50 hours. If everyone watches 200 hours, therefore it's 25%. But I think what he's, he's not really saying is, we didn't really actually say whether that represents 25% of the watching. We just think, A, it's one in four. And this goes back to the idea that I think if you leave the network on all day, every day, you're consuming, quote unquote, tons and tons of hours of content. Um, I don't yeah, know. And I th- thought about this. If you wanted to manipulate the W network, you know, we, there's, there's people talk about sometimes how, yeah, I want, you know, this territory's archive on the network. Why isn't Georgia on the network? And why isn't there more Mid South? And, and the answer to that probably is they haven't uploaded that stuff yet, or they haven't uploaded the old territory stuff as much yet because not as many people are watching that stuff. So if you want to manipulate the W network analytics, what you need to do is you and your friends need to turn on your W network and just play old stuff all day long so that those numbers get run up and then, you know, Tammy O'Donoghue or George Barrios or whoever's looking at the analytics goes, hey, everybody wants to see world class, so let's start uploading more of that stuff. Or and, and, that, and George talked about that where he said... Um, no piece of archival footage gets a lot of the audience, but every piece of archival footage gets an audience. And um, if you listen to George talk about it, you'd think that they love their archive and they're great at, at keeping it up to date and it's just a joy. Where I think you, you, we've heard a lot of classic wrestling fans complain about that. And that gets to the core of what he thinks the network is today, which is he says... We thought it would be for the pay-per-views, but it ended up being for so much more. But it's there to super serve the fans. It's for the hardcore of the hard, the core of the core, as we said last time. And it's such a weird thing because it's kind of like, well, there's a big disconnect between the people who want to watch old footage and the people that want to watch new footage. And it's not – there's the Venn diagram doesn't complete with the people who want both. There's yeah. so many people. And so it's so weird that you're marketing this thing as more for the – new stuff than for the old stuff and then at the same time you're kind of like using the old stuff as the crutch and i guess it makes some sense because you do have those fans that are temperamental and they want to watch wrestlemania and royal rumble and the old stuff holds them over and obviously i don't have the cohort data to look at it but as uh, somebody kind of pointed out to me on twitter every data set looks like a pattern if you zoom out enough or you zoom in enough noise is noise and as someone who works in data analytics, I, I believe and I, I agree with that, which is you can always find a pattern, but whether that pattern is predictive and especially whether that pattern is actionable is very different because, um, of course, they have a way to say, yeah, we can tell how many 41 to 44-year-old Chromecast, Chromecast uh, men that like Lou Harper, Harper matches are out there uh, that watch on 
on Tuesdays, but is that really going to be useful without it becoming pandering at a certain point uh, when they try to... I don't know about you. I've been getting a lot of emails lately from the WWE Network where they replace the name of the WWE Network with the name of the wrestler. So, so I get... If, I've heard about this, like Seth Rollins. Is, yeah, you know, like, it says, saying, watch hey. me dominate at... Yeah. Watch, watch me and win the five-way match at Extreme Extreme Rules this Sunday. Yeah, it's just, it's a weird, it's weird. But I, I can tell it's a gimmick that they're trying. And, you know, I, I'm all for gimmicks when it comes to that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, how long it's going to take them to put 100,000 hours of library, which includes, quote, B-roll, multiple angles, and so forth. Uh, you said it would probably be about 55 years if they keep up at their current rate. Uh, let's yeah. hope it's a little faster than that. But, um mm. I mean, I don't see any incentive for them to move it faster than the rate that they're going at, you know? Um, uh, I do if they actually want to make a marketing campaign that's built around something specifically. But, no, I agree with you that it's 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 a gimmick now. But, like, say you want to do ICW Progress, I don't think it does you any good to put ten matches on. I think you need to put on a year's worth of library at once in a, if you're going to do something like that to make it really inviting and interesting to someone. Yeah, but if they're if you've got rights to the progress and ICW libraries or whatever, well, that adds to your total library archive, and I don't know. But yeah, it may be, you know, I'm maybe 85 years old by the time the entire archive is the entire. That, that, isn't there like a cave? Isn't it like literally a cave that where where like the vault where all the the video footage, some of it is kept? I do not I feel think like I, so. Maybe maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe I had a bad dream. <laughs> I think dream, you are but, dreaming. <laughs> um, I, I swear, I, somebody, I saw a picture somewhere. Maybe it wasn't legit. There was articles but, years ago about their video center that they started. And then when we were talking all about like the, the write-off they had a couple quarters ago, it was largely about this media center that they were developing. But they, they, they started the center in like New Jersey where they did all like the transfers from the old films to kind of digitizing it. And there was an article in like multi-channel news where they were talking about, you know, we have this facility that's doing all this kind of conversions of these, you know, old films into a digital process. And I think that's what's, you know, aggravates people the most is that they're like, we know that a lot of this stuff has actually been digitized already. It's just a matter of, you know, trying to figure out what you're actually putting up. And of course, it all has to be archived is their biggest thing is they're really big on archiving it. I interviewed a guy years and years ago who was talking about how, you know, there's people who would sit there in headquarters and their job was just to watch matches, write down who was in it and what the finish was. Well, I remember not too long ago, they, uh, they, they had a job posting for like, hey, do you, do you love Excel and like to watch wrestling all day? Something to that effect. And it, it sounds like it was that job where you just went through their video archives and yeah. And so, so they, that's what they want. They want the finish in there too. Cause then they, when you, whenever you do a terrible W network search, you always get that. You get, Two results for every match. You get the match, and then you get so and so pin so and so. Or they they have changed that at least on my Apple TV when I do a search now. The finish isn't spoiled. They've replaced it with like W Championship match or something like that. Yeah, it was it was interesting though. I don't know what about that made that so appealing for them to focus in that direction at first, but uh, maybe just because they wanted to do all the post match things and it was easier if you you tag what's the beginning of the match and the end of the match or something. Yeah. Uh, talking about tiers on the network, which is something that obviously there was a survey number a year, number of months ago, uh, and got everyone hot and bothered thinking that tiers were eminent. And then ever since then, there's been no talk about it. And there's been people saying, well, what happened to it? And uh, it's been interesting because George really went into the economics of it. And for a show called WrestleNomics, I kind of feel like his paragraph here 
might be like the closest thing I could ever get to an economics wrestling course where he says, you know, they asked him, what are you going to do to segment your fan base and are you going to do price tiers on the network? And he said, well, from a wonky business perspective, if you can segment your demand curve, you maximize revenue. By definition, you want tiers because that's how you can optimize revenue. The key is being able to differentiate the product and create value proposition at different price points. And if you get that wrong, you can damage the existing business. And that's the intellectual context. And I thought, I'm actually 100% with him on this one. Um, yeah. when I, I think worked, Michelle Wilson said something similar at the last call, too, or maybe after WrestleMania recently. Yeah. Uh, years ago, he said something about conjoint analysis and demand curves and the same idea. Um, and, and this is when I, when I worked in the grocery store industry, I did a lot of demand curve and optimization curves. And it was really interesting to like, you know, break down different products and look at which ones were price flexible and inflexible and what do you do? And so you, you learn a lot about like, well, the laundry detergent that's for infants draft, you don't want to even bother putting that on, on discount. Cause if you put it on discount, people buy twice as much but it's the same people. No one trades up from Tide or anything else. But something like a um, uh, soda is incredibly flexible. Chips are incredibly flexible. Um, and it's just fascinating where you can see like the, the, such a beautiful demand curve gets created when you do that. And there's a lot to be said for when you have the flexibility, especially when you can segment your customers. So if you're in certain marketplaces, it was preferable to, you know, price up certain products if you knew a different demographic was shopping there because they might be more price inflexible or flexible. And so you would you would apply these different strategies to different stores and different assortments. And this is like straight up my alley. And so this is like I was so excited to hear him talk about this. At the same time, I'll always go back to the idea that this $10 price point they put themselves in has really boxed them in um, because of the comparison to Netflix. You had a lot to say on There's, that, though, which was interesting. The, about. I think the price point is, is also boxed out, which we might talk about later when we talk about Flow Slam. Um, I think their price point has also made it more difficult for the even more niche independent wrestling promotions that when they want to charge more than $10, which they probably should, they're stuck looking like they're overpriced because, hey, look, the industry leader that dominates the wrestling world is only for only $9.99. Why should I pay more than that for this lower, you know, this lower profile thing? Exactly. And even like uh, Meltzer was writing about in The Observer, you can't be angry at the WWE for $9.99, right? Like, no pay-per-view is so horrific that you're like, that was not worth me getting access to all this stuff for $10 this month. It's 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 almost impossible not to have something rewarding and valuable. When you go back to the days of like the NWA TNA pay-per-views, uh, you know, that were like 10 bucks, And you could argue maybe some of those were not worth the $10. But maybe. It, it's pretty hard to find a month it, where you could not get $10 worth of value out of the WWE Network. And yeah, it's tough to even the, feel the like... The threshold for frustration in, in terms of like, that wasn't worth my money, I got ripped off, is, is much lower because it's only 10 bucks rather than 45 or 55 Yeah, exactly. Like, you, you would have... I, I, again, you can, I remember the days of the paper where you had real, you know, grief over the idea that I'm spending 50 bucks for three or four hours of entertainment. And if it sucks... I have wasted an enormous amount of money, <laughs> and like, yeah. which always sounded insane to me. Like, at, at least as like an adult, maybe I'm just cheap and frugal. But like, the idea of paying, even when it was thirty bucks, for a pay per view, 
I think I've said to you before, like the, the idea of, of paying you know, 30, 40, 50 dollars for a pay-per-view is just, I would never pay, it doesn't matter how good it is, I'm not going to spend 30 to 50 dollars on a, on a rest, to watch a wrestling event in my home. Uh, but, which, but 10, yeah, maybe. Which brings me to my new thesis, which is that this commoditization of wrestling by making it such a low-cost commodity has resulted in some of the downward spiral in terms of the ability of WWE to have the ratings and to have the general engagement that it had before. And what I mean by that is, when there was pay-per-views, how many people were at those pay-per-view parties? Rarely did you spend the 30 or 50, 60 bucks by yourself. Right. More yeah. often, what I would do is I might spend 40 or 50, I might host the party, and I would invite people over. And it was a social event. And in some ways... That social for me, it would be like I would watch pay-per-views on on occasion with people, and then it would be like, oh yeah, throw in five or ten bucks for the pay-per-view, so you're paying for it collectively. And and you know exactly when I started when I when I was young, all through like the mid 2000s, that's what we did. And then when I had a job, and then I was you know it was a WrestleMania party or something, I, I was fine if I spent it myself. But at the same time, it was like I wanted people to come over and enjoy it with me, and so there was this social element to it. And I think in some cases. That social element reinforced the need to kind of watch the show more because you'd talk to other people, you'd interact with them directly about these things for several hours. And now it's like, it's less common for me to do these kind of watching parties, even though it's cheaper than it ever was to have them. And, and yeah, I do them for WrestleMania. Sometimes I do them for SummerSlam, but that's about it. And so I think there's that element of it. And then additionally, I think that relates to the ratings kind of going down because in some ways you're not reinforcing this notion that it's it's an important group activity so often. And lastly, you're commoditized to the point where you said the most valuable thing we have there is part of a $10 service. So this television show that is three hours long plus this other show that's two hours long, which arguably is as long or longer than the pay-per-view is, is worth nothing. And so it, it's like it's no longer even feels like it's the premium cream of the crop of material that you're getting delivered upon. And so it, it's really strange to me how much it feels almost upside down at times by that $10 feels like, wow, something that was worth 60 is now worth 10 Maybe it was never worth 60 <laughs> um, So are you saying that because people are not watching pay-per-views together as much that that's a factor in, in the ratings decline? I'm saying it, it. part of why it feels to me sometimes that like Raw is so must-miss is because there's less of these connection points than there were 10 years ago to bring people together to kind of invest in the product as a group. And then in those investments, you became interested in it. Because, you know, maybe somebody was the super fan in your group and they got you more excited about what's happening with wrestling again. Mm. But, you know, again, I don't have my data to prove this. This is a completely tangential theory. I also feel that just the value of wrestling has gone down where a $10 show is a, is a can-miss show. A $60 show is not. And so I, I'm more likely to skip a pay-per-view because it just doesn't feel to me like it's that important anymore. Yeah. Do you watch every pay-per-view? No. I, I do, or at least, you know, the way I watch wrestling, I have it on. I don't think I've ever... If, if, unless there was a reason. Sometimes I'm just not home for some reason. But if I'm home, it's on, yeah. And I mean, to me, it's because they're competing with other Sunday night material that usually between, in my household, it's going to win out. So if it's, you know, between that and whatever's on HBO, usually HBO is going to win out that night. I'll I'll go back and pick it up later a lot of the time. But um, 
Yeah, I've been I've been getting I've been slacking lately unless I go to someone else's house and physically force myself to invest in it. And it's the same idea that we talk about investment in the show, which is he loves to talk here about how they've improved their branding uh, by getting better partners over the last five years. But at the same time, I think they're ignoring the fact that they've now expanded the show to three hours and they've lost more viewers over that time. And I think it's a different audience that they've been left with in some ways. And so it's interesting that they have been able to monetize it. And it's it's almost um, conversely related. But it, it fascinates me that it just feels like they've made the show less and less important over time. And yet they've actually been able to finally get more and more money for it. It's It's a fascinating connection. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add to that. Yeah. What about um, the wholesale partners versus a uh, retail part? Or I guess he just said, why don't you use wholesale partners? Uh, it's a great way to quote reduce churn. Was the analyst question? Is it a bottleneck here around price or data? And um, what George said was that we we want to know the economics of a relationship. We want access to user identification, particularly the email uh, account, and we want access to consumption data of our content, similar to what we have now with direct to consumer. And, and by the way, I needed an explanation of what he was referring to by wholesale partners. I guess he's talking about Amazon and things like that. That's my yeah. belief because I think the idea is that you know you could subscribe to HBO, but you get it through the Amazon platform, and in that sense, Amazon owns the relationship with you rather and, than. And, and as you explained to me, it would be. I mean, in, in theory, we're we're just speculating here, but it would be like an an additional charge on your Amazon Prime subscription, sort of like. Getting cable, getting a HBO if you already have cable. Yeah, that's exactly how I think it works. Um, and I think their theory behind it is a Amazon takes a cut of the takes a slice of it. So you know instead of nine ninety nine going to WWE, you know WWE only gets six ninety nine and three bucks goes to Amazon. Part of it is Amazon gets a way to you know boost their service and they have an enormous reach. You know you think about the number of people that have installed the WWE app and the number of people that have an Amazon account and have it installed you're you're talking about such a larger reach and george's argument basically was well if you're a general entertainment form this makes sense but for us we already know how to get in touch with our people specifically the 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 hardcores that want wwe pay-per-views and it's not like they're sitting there searching for them on amazon saying why can't i get the network on amazon if they want it they can get it and so it doesn't make sense for us to give away 30% 30% of the pie and lose the identification of those people just to get a larger audience. I think yeah, so why, in time... Why, share, why, why give somebody a commission on on your subscription yeah. that, you're, that you're selling to somebody else if, if you're not a general entertainment thing and you can... You're, you're talking to your potential customers all the time when you air Raw and SmackDown or when you're on social media or whatever. So I think... Like there's not an access or in this sense there's not an access or availability problem that teaming up with Amazon is going to resolve or alleviate. It's funny because it's another one of these cases where I feel like the analysts it's another one of their their financial wet dreams where they yeah. they just kind of create this scenario where they think it's really good for WWE to do this and they keep pushing this idea and WWE keeps kind of because resisting. these are probably people who who are really into following the business of Amazon and Netflix and whatever and it's yeah. like oh man imagine if you know yeah. but on the flip side I would say if WWE had a particular product they could sell that was tailored to an audience beyond their hardcore that they speak to all the time absolutely this is a great way so if they created the classic wrestling bundle that was you know not 
unbelievably deep territory of footage and this and that, and it was, you know, on some kind of premium thing, yeah, maybe it would make sense to market that through an Amazon or something and try to connect with a person who has no concept of what the network is right now. But they don't have anything like that. They're not working on anything like that that we know of. So it, it's probably not the right time. When they get desperate, when they hit the two million mark and they can't get to two and a half million, you might see deals like this being made. Yeah, you think the the key to if they if they do get to, to three million is they have to wake up all these international markets. I don't see how they can't have it be. I think the U.S. has a ceiling. Yeah, I think and, the U.S. The ceiling is we're just about there with the U.S. It's going to grow a little bit, but I think most of the growth has happened. Short of a skinny bundle of some sort, where you know you're getting MLB or NHL or something else and wrestling together, it it's maxed out. If mm-hmm. they find a partner and they win in it together, I do think there's opportunities because you know I I do think there's fans that would be interested in more than one thing, and if you can find that collusion in the right way, it would work. You know, if there was an HBO and WWE Network bundle, uh, I think you could get enormous uptake on something like that. It's not going to happen, but, it, you know, there's that opportunity. Yeah, so I think for domestic subs, they're at something like 1.1 million, something like that. So the idea of, I mean, where are they going to get another 2 million U.S. subs from, bar, you know, short of WWE becoming this really hot popular thing like it was in the late 90s or something like that? Yeah, or it being being so different than what it is now in what they're producing so if you know the uk market they created a completely different federation and they were able to bring back people that were interested in something completely different than wwe and they were appealing to them in some way mm-hmm. um talking about that that abroad you know they they went into talking about what they called english which was their hindi english show in india and just uh, what it what a success it's been and how they're doing the same thing in ons uh, in the Middle East, and then they they started talking about uh, you know international ideas and saying basically like Netflix does a show uh, for the Brazil market, but then they bring it into the U.S. market and they put it on U.S. Netflix. And if you're interested in it, hey, you can get it. You know, I watched um, not Narcos, but I watched a different version of a very similar Pablo Escobar story that was produced in like Colombia or Mexico. And, you know, on Netflix, it's like, oh, this is neat. This is content that I'm interested in. And so I always find – and there's, of course, lots of British content coming over to the U.S. and vice versa. Um, So they were talking about the U.K. content. And then George got a little mixed up on, I think, some of his details because he referred to the Beasts in the East special, but then primarily using his NXT talent. And uh, I went back and checked the the match results. And as – of course, it was called Beasts from the East because Brock Lesnar was there who uh, had had a, a substantial impact on Japanese wrestling uh, after his time in the WWE. And then the only NXT match there was Finn Balor and, and Kevin Owens. So I don't know if he meant to say, like, we've done a lot of specials now of NXT in other places, or whether he really, in his mind, thought that Beast from the East was an NXT show. But uh, it well, certainly was not. No, George isn't exactly a wrestling guy, so I think he just had a lapse in, in memory and, and remembered that there was a big promoted Finn Balor and Kevin Owens. It was a title change. It was a title change, yeah. This is where Brock Lesnar wrestled Kofi Kingston. Yeah, yeah, and they talked a lot about it at the time, about how even though the show was airing on a holiday and on a weird time, it got enormous consumption. I think this was an eye-opening experience for them where they learned, oh gosh, we don't have to run a pay-per-view on a Sunday night to get people to watch. People are interested in content if it intrigues them, 
And holidays can be a great time to run content. And so I think the same with the UK Championship. They learned sometimes it's better just to find a good time in a local time slot, and the wrestling community will adapt just the way they have been for years. I mean, I feel so bad for the UK market and the hours that they have to watch wrestling at. And it's like yeah. they've put up with that for years and years. That says a lot about, you know, their willingness. Well, and and yeah, it also opens fans in, in the US or wherever they are put up with, you know, being up at whatever prime time whatever the prime time hour is in Japan. I I, I remember I used to cover live um, you know, the big Japanese shows and I would be up like from three in the morning until six in the morning or something. True, but let's put it in perspective. You know, we were talking about the, the New Japan world and how many subs they had in the US. And, you know, what was it, 20,000, 10,000, 15,000? So, you know, we're talking about a service that has a million subscribers in the U.S. Uh, there's a pretty big different scale. I think you're always going to have 20,000 people that are willing to do something. But I don't know if you're going to have 200,000 people, which is probably much more in the range of what Beast from the East was doing, which was a substantial portion of the, the market, because they mentioned it on the next call about how successful it was. I think it also opens up the, the possibility we might see pay-per-views international markets even including some big pay-per-views in the future despite the fact that you know maybe it won't be a great time for the u.s marketplace because they they see that uh essentially digital viewing it allows us both to time shift but also to tolerate time shifting in a different way yeah in new japan world by the way after the most recent wrestle kingdom on january 4th had about fifteen thousand or fifteen thousand five hundred outside japan subscribers yeah. so that that's I, my and, that's and my think, baseline for people that are willing to stay up really late to watch wrestling yeah. and i think i think the observers reported that it's which you might have gotten from chris charlton or something i don't know um but it's, it's gone down just like wrestling it just like subscribers goes down after wrestlemania you know cause that's the big event of the year yeah and um the next part is he just talked about uh stuff and he spe- the, the analyst specifically said would you ever make a deal with something like a ring of honor or an adjacent sport that maybe your fans would be interested in and then George, out of the blue, a props to nothing, not not yeah. no one twisting his arm, just goes, well, we recently announced a deal with ICW in progress. They're wrestling promotions in the UK. And all I could think is, wow, that was a, quite a strong statement that I don't believe had been, um, uh, quote unquote, publicly announced in any way. No. He's just, I, I, so I asked around when I, when I read this, or I, I, I listened to it first, and I thought, you know, that, that was news to me. And then I, I saw you do the transcript here, and I was like, okay, he definitely said that. And, um, I, I asked around, I asked on Twitter, I asked, uh, you know, people I know, has this been reported? Did I just miss it? But no, there, there's been no recent announcement about deals with, between WWE and each of ICW in progress, but I mean, but the only, is, maybe he meant in, during the WrestleMania weekend when they were making some deals about using talents or but announced. Yeah. Did, no. I mean, but, and did they, announce, did they no. do something publicly? Like, I don't think so. So that, that I thought was funny where uh, every now and then that's why these, these, talks are so interesting to me and i kind of went on a rant this week about it where i was saying you know there's so many wrestling pundits and journalists and podcasts out there ours included that talk and talk and talk but they don't ever you know you're not hearing from people that are decision makers you're hearing from people that are uh, interpreting decision makers this is the decision maker this is a primary source this is the the arguably the number three maybe number four guy in the company right you got vince you got Hunter, you got Steph, and then you've got 
George Berrios. And if you want to, I get is like when we're talking about hardcore business decisions, I, I feel like he's number two. Yeah, yeah, I think he's he's. I mean, you could argue that that Triple H's decision to expand and develop NXT is a good example yeah. of a business investment. But short of that, all the other major business stuff has come from Wilson. Yeah, because when, and when you listen to interviews with Triple H, and they'll start to ask him something about the network, something that's more up George Berrios' alley. He he's like he's totally deferent on it. He's like I don't know you you gotta talk to to the network people or something like that. He's obviously he has his area that he's experienced in, and obviously yeah, we know Triple H is, is has never been in an, another business really besides WWE at least not since what 1995. Um, or he talks about how like when they said hey I want to do NXT they're like great put together a business presentation with an investment case showing what the dia dia you know the the variable. Cost will be year over year and the payback. And I think he's like, yeah, I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. Uh, that Did was you say that, that one. Yeah, yeah. He gave a whole talk one time where he talked about how they basically said you had to put together a real presentation on this. And I think he was kind of like, oh. And he's like, I had to learn how to do all this kind of stuff. And uh, I, I'm sure you know, in his role, there are people that report up to him and work with him that you know worked with him on kind of what does a business development plan look like. But yeah, he talked about it one time. Where you're saying, you know, they didn't just give me, you know, say, yes, you can go do this. He, I had to pitch them a real plan. Do you remember he, where he said that? Is that like one of his recent interviews with, with like these sports outlets? That he has no, no. I, I, I want to say it was the fireside chat he did years ago uh, at Needham. But um, maybe I'm thinking of a different time. Uh, we'll have to look it up. So you, so you said, you're saying Barrio said this about... No, Paul no, no, Levesque. no. Tr- Paul Levesque said it himself. Oh, is, is this the talk where like Stephanie and Triple H make that yeah. comment about how UFC isn't really... Competition. Yeah. yeah, I think oh, it was okay. that one. I think it was that okay. one. We'll have to check. But um, yeah. yeah, that was that was the one that that really struck me. And so I, I think so. So real quick though about about ICW in progress. So his his quote is: We recently announced a deal with ICW in progress, which are wrestling promotions in the UK. So we're thinking about the best way to utilize that content. So you want to speculate about what what is the what is the uh, what are the terms of the deal that he's referring to? Is it have they bought? And do they now own? Because they're big into owning everything that they put on the network, right? Have they bought and now own some video that that formerly belonged to ICW in progress, or do you think they're just they've got rights to it for to, to put it on the network, or or what? I can't imagine it's anything except for a opportunity to own all the content, and then maybe own the actual IP of you know these companies in terms of saying uh, we can control something about the way that you run. Uh, and all the future content that you're, that you're gonna make in, in the future is it, uh, you know yeah it could be that see, are we ever gonna see progress or ICW live on the network yeah well I think the interest in you know doing a UK show just kind of shows that perhaps the solution to a UK show is not we produce a UK show as much as we partner with a company that we basically pay to produce a UK show and we get all the rights to it but uh, so, it'll, it'll be fascinating to, to see where that goes. But back to my rant, it was just that, you know, what an interesting thing he announced. He talked all about this. Nobody else is out there listening to this primary source just because it's behind a, a click wall where you have to give Free your wall. email and then click it again. Like it's, right. and, it's and, and like we said, I said at the beginning, like this was this came out on May twenty second and like and we didn't bother to listen to it either until the other day. And like that that's news that could have been out there and it, it just, you know, nobody dug deep enough. Yeah, it, it it just shocks me that it's just like, you know, so many people have time for podcasts, but so few people see, seem to have time to listen to 
primary thinkers on some of these things. And so, you know, shame you, on you, them for not listening to George Barry. Yeah, business yeah. talks. Well, I'm saying anybody who listens yeah. to an NXT conference call deserves. You know, yeah. what 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 has had more interesting uh, nuggets in it is a Berrios talk where he actually gives some details about how the business is run, times that he's talked with Vince and the strategy for the company moving forward, or an NXT conference call where the PWI insider guy uh, or whoever races to see how many times he can say, thanks, Paul. Hi, Paul. Yeah. yeah. Well, to be fair, like a lot of times these Berrios talks, like we said earlier, are are not very informative and they're sort of glorified sales pitches but yeah there was uh, on this one there was a lot of good info it's particularly in the next part which which is where they basically said to him like we've said a few times what's going to happen in 2019 and it was interesting because he just talked about you know well obviously sometimes you can get quote starry-eyed when you think about the uh the digital stream and how maybe it's just bits and bytes and it's just another way to deliver content and maybe it doesn't it's not that different but at the same time he's also kind of saying well maybe tv is still going to be really relevant in the u.s but we're all about building up our brand on a b2b basis on a business to uh business basis and that we are one of the largest deliverable deliverers of live eyeballs in the united states which uh which conjures up a lot of yeah uh, we need a, a meaty fist drawing of that one but uh yeah yeah I just imagine George Berrios, you know, in, in hospital scrubs with the mask on and the and the you know the hair net or whatever, is pushing is this you know stainless steel medical tray full of cookie sheets upon cookie sheets of live eyeballs. And and he was just talking about you know there's different cases where you can argue content owners are either going to get more valuable or less valuable, uh, but we're in a good place because we can you know deal with all these subscriber changes and we can deal with being a big content deliverer and we have of course our own pipeline so it was interesting but one thing that you were talking about is just this idea that is wwe really focused on fans or is it focused on interfacing with other brands yeah and i think what he was saying there um which is so he said so internally our, our engine is about building the brand on a business to business basis and and there's some good intent there and I'll probably say overall this is a good idea because I think the image of pro wrestling is really damaged and that's why their their ad fees are so low um, but at the same time you, you watch this program and you watch Raw or Smackdown and you feel like man this, this feels like this is not even intended for, for human viewing this feels like a corporate sanitized product and we could go on and on about how the language is just so inhuman and nobody really talks that way so it's it's kind of revealing, at least in that, okay, the, the, when they do their TV, a lot of it, it isn't necessarily created for us as wrestling fans to watch and be like, wow, this is a great wrestling show. But there's at least another purpose involved, which is let's enhance the image of WWE. Let's make WWE look really good to other businesses because that's going to benefit us and that we're going to be able to, to build more partnerships and it's going to enhance the image of, pro, of, of, of WWE, not pro wrestling, because they don't, they don't do pro wrestling, but it'll enhance the image of WWE and it'll allow us, you know, to do whatever, whether that means better ad rates or better sponsors or, or whatever. And I wonder sometimes if it's almost like the difference between a television show that's produced by a network and a television show that's produced by a production company, where it's not like The Bachelor is real. It's not like The Bachelor cares necessarily about presenting uh, these characters as real people. 
as much as it is is getting whatever their vision across. But at the same time, I don't think The Bachelor cares about what network it's on as much as as maybe uh, elevating its brand versus, you know, the Disneyfication of some of these shows sometimes can almost feel like it's a... It's, you know, when the, the sitcom stars go to the theme park owned by the same network that they're on. And it, it feels so much like this is now just a commercial for different companies that have worked on this project rather than it's a story that we're trying to actually follow. And it's, it intrigues me in that sense where it's almost like it feels like if WWE became um, the company that the program, but the people who actually produce it were independent production you would have this interesting thing where you would say, oh, look at that UK thing. It's really intriguing. It's fun because it's not obsessed with being a brand the way WWE has become obsessed with that, like you say with the language, where it, it's not so much a problem to me that television shows aren't real or don't feel real or don't feel compelling because, you know, there's lots of things about loss that don't feel like they're real and compelling. But at the same time, I, I struggle with, you know, connecting sometimes with that um, the way WWE has become, at least at this point. So... I agree with you completely on that, that they're so focused on being having blue chip advertisers and, and getting the thumbs up from their corporate sponsors who are paying all the bills, you know, paying such a large lion's share of the profitable portion of their their revenue generation uh, that at times it feels like they are very much like the hardcores are the ones that buy this. So who cares what the hardcores feel like? And I know that's the, the premise of every other podcast out there today. <laughs> it, it's striking sometimes when you hear them talk about it in the corporate fashion where I like, I respect the business intent to say, how do we monetize content and how do we split it into tiers? But the, the, I don't always respect the idea of just saying we're a business, we're a business, we're a business. All we care about is uh, our brand versus, you know, if you care about patient outcome, uh, you feel very differently about how you position yourself in the marketplace. And maybe that's the difference between being a healthcare company and being a chocolate company. Yeah, and I, th I think, I think wrestling in general has a legacy of incompetence to it. And now, you know, W is still a very successful business, but I think there's there's a long history of not just it being a trashy product, but of it dismissing its fans and dis especially its most loyal fans, which I. I'm not as, as much of a fan of anything else but wrestling, so I don't have a lot of experience to compare it to. But I don't think if you're a big fan of, of uh, I don't know, comic books or, or something else, there may be some marginal analogs to this. But I don't think that anybody mistreats their fans quite the way that, that pro wrestling promoters do because I think it goes back to a way of thinking, you know, that goes all the way back, you know, to the to the fifties or sixties or even further back than that. Of the, the the point is to kind of to disregard them and to to fool them and to and to make them think that it's real or to, to manipulate them in, into the seats to get them there next week or next month. Um, and I think that that philosophy has you know manifested into today where like it well, it doesn't really matter what what the fans think and. I think it is tricky because when, when, you, when you book a show, I think it's kind of like you're, you're creating a, a single meal that you're going to serve to like millions of people and everybody's going to have their, you know, their preference and wish that it was some other way, you know, that, that suits their taste more. But 
But I always prefer that the meal is served and people talk about it as good or bad, not as historic or first time. Because what drives me nuts is, like, it's not that it's a women's Hell in a Cell match because they have a blood feud that cannot be cannot be fulfilled. It's that it's the first ever women's Hell in a Cell match or the first ever women's Money in the Bank match. And and it it drives me nuts when we focus more on the fact that it's historic rather than that it's that that the story has brought us to that point. And and it doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel like I, I could recognize on my own that it, it that it is historic but because you're you know you're so interested in, in throwing it in my face that it's, it's historic it takes off at least for me as a fan and a viewer it, it takes away that that actual feeling of importance to it and yeah. the social change or whatever uh, and, and to me it goes to this espn discussion because when you look at them bragging about how espn covers them now what that really shows me is that they've basically convinced ESPN that they can regurgitate their made-up storylines without analysis and without actual ability to, to you know, the Entertainment Weekly version of reporting, not the the Newsweek, Time, were act, New York Times actual investigative version of reporting. And and no, sports reporting not, not always the gotcha felt, media, the uh, <laughs> the co-opted media. It just it just baffles me because it's just like. You know, ESPN does have this great opportunity to say, okay, we're cover wrestling, but we're actually going to, like, look at the business of wrestling, the the economics of wrestling, the theory of wrestling. And, like, at least Vulture or something is going to cover television, but then talk about television and say, is Shonda Rhimes on the right track, the wrong track? Is this actress the right person? Is this storyline connecting with fans or not connecting with fans? And sometimes it feels like, wow, they, they were able to co-opt the media in such a way here that they get covered, but they don't get covered the way they would cover any other sport or any other subject. And kudos to them for getting to own their coverage. You know, I, I'm sure sure good friend uh, Donald Trump would love if he could have that same liberty himself. But it's a different it's a different kind of experience. And, he, you know, they brag about we got them to launch a vertical on ESPN.com. We got them to launch a vertical on Fox Sports. Uh, I think CBS has a vertical that no one ever talks about. Uh, as David Vixen's fan brought up one day. But um, there's all these new like people that are basically trying to profit off WWE by saying, let's put the eyeballs back on us by talking about them. And it's astonishing that in this world where it feels like there's constriction going on on the number of people that want to care about this product, there seems to be this land grab to try to uh, – everybody try to get the, the – the media from it. And it's funny that, you know, you'd almost think you'd start seeing like a game of Thrones vertical pop up at ESPN next because they think, Hey, that's the next thing that a lot of people want to talk about. And a lot of eyes are drawn to, but uh, it's, it's... I I think that's one of the the benefits of nobody taking wrestling seriously for so long. No media outlet of of a mainstream profile wanting to cover it is that now you've got, you've got a up and starting around. I think Vix likes to make a point that in, this really started in about 2011 with the passing of, of Macho Man Randy Savage. Is that that's when a lot of people started to, a lot of media outlets, mainstream media outlets, started to, to cover wrestling and take it a little more seriously. Um, so I think up until then, you got everybody not really taking it seriously, certainly not covering it, certainly not having verticals for it. Um, so so there are no, like there are no established relationships. There are there are no there's, there's no media outlet that you know. Is, is balanced towards WWE and, ha- and is able to get access and is able to get interviews so that the only people you're going to make friends with are going to be, be the people that you trust to give you good publicity. Oh, sure. And, I mean, like Mark Glazer at Variety 
will just oftentimes regurgitate all sorts of talking points that they've given him. And I, I the one thing I will think that is incredible that WWE has managed to do is that they've cultivated this like carousel of sources so that when they want to drop the scoop of who the new uh, Hall of Fame member right. is, it goes to Rolling Stone one week, it goes to Fox Sports the next week, it goes to, you know, they, they go one by one by one. And I, I'm just like brilliant on their part that they've been able to basically go around and say, hey, do you want to be our mouthpiece? Do you want to be the mouthpiece? Do you want to be the mouthpiece? Right. And, which, uh, which to me, as just a, a media consumer, just looks completely insulting and absurd. It's like you... They, they didn't break, they, they make it sound like Rolling Stone broke the story, like there's some investigative reporter working for Rolling Stone who found out that Rick Rude's going to be in the Hall of Fame or whatever it is. It's just absurd. You yeah, know, it's but, not like the Nobel Prize Committee calls up different newspapers <laughs> one by one and says, Chicago yeah. Tribune, I'll tell you about this one. <clears throat> like someone was hacking into Mr. Man's phone and found out that you know, so-and-so is going to be in the Hall of Fame and whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> getting back to this talk with George, we're almost done, I promise, folks. Um <laughs> is that uh, literally it was recorded the day after Jinder Mahal won, and George Berrios starts talking about it. And again, with all this coverage of, of Jinder Mahal and all these you know thought pieces that people wrote, I wrote one, you wrote one, every you know it was, it was the, 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 the meal of the day, soup of the day, uh, was to write an article about uh, India and WWE. But uh, they asked George Berrios about it, and he says, you know, uh, there's lots of agape mouths in the Berrios household last night when that happened. We were all excited. Then he then he admitted, my wife is part Indian, so my kids are part Indian. We were all excited on multiple levels. And then he basically goes down and just starts talking about India and saying, you know, our goal is not to screw it up. And we have more, quote, viewers in India of our traditional long-form weekly content than anywhere else in the world. And I was just like, that's the most manufactured sentence I've heard in a while. Um, but just talking about that, and I thought, you know, George has been on the India train for a while. I, I have copies from years ago where he started talking about you know why india was going to be the future um but i've never heard him admit that apparently his his wife and his children both have an indian heritage to them which i thought was interesting um just that you know sometimes you have a personal connection to a story and that's what turns you on and says hey this is a good market or this is a good idea or something like that by no means is he the first person to talk about how india has a huge opportunity there but it does intrigue me that, you know, you do see a little bit of, of the hand uh, shaking the hand here where it, it's, it continues to go with that narrative that is WWE doing this because there's a whole bunch of social media followers in India and that their business development guy is, you know, thinks that India is the future and then this and that. And then at what point does creative actually get the nudge to say, go in this direction? Or at what point is it just... Hey, it organically happened because Vince McMahon has suddenly realized that that Jinder Mahal has better genetics than everyone else on his roster. <laughs> There's better something. Uh, I, I think Jinder Mahal winning the WWE title is is basically confirmation that Vince McMahon has handed the the, the book over to George Barrios. But I wonder what the what the Barrios household you know thinks of you know Jinder Mahal's apparently heelish assertion that you know. That in America, uh, you know, people who look different or, or from different ethnicities are aren't aren't always treated as nicely. You know, which well, is apparently a, a villainous uh, trait. And and again, that. George was asked about you know what why what's special about this, and he said, I think having an Indian champion can only help, hopefully. <laughs> and so you know, he seems to uh, be. It's funny because this is a good example of the difference between a casual media and a real wrestling fan interviewing him, where. You know, I think a real wrestling fan at some point might say, hey, isn't Jinder a heel? But 
you know, there is that element of at least this guy knew the guy's name, talked about him seriously, and, and you know, I agree, it's not the right place to always beat up on the booking committee through the, the guy, who the CFO. So uh, I, I'm not saying we it, that they should have harped on this, but I just thought it was so interesting that, you know, everyone was trying to put words in people's mouths in WWE about why they made this decision. And there seems to be a lot of uh, – he was pretty clear about it in both the call beforehand and then the call the next day. So there's a lot I, to be I learned. think these days, too, in, in wrestling where it's it's acknowledged so much as a show and it's, it, they emphasize how much it's entertainment that I don't think today as opposed to maybe 20 years ago – that oh this guy's a heel is is such a is such a sticking point or you know raises people's ears to be like well wait a minute is he really gonna be an attractive star to the Indian market because you've got him positioned as a heel I don't maybe 20 years ago people would have thought like that but I think and WB kind of acts like you know sometimes heel and face don't matter and and again I think this the public perception of pro wrestling is is such that you know. Yeah, there, it's, you know, there, there's villains, there's bad guys, there's good guys, but it's all just entertainment. So, you know, and, and you think about, I, mean, I, I think it's dangerous to start making analogies to movies and TV, but I'm going to do it. And you look at, like, well, Darth Vader. Darth Vader is this really cool character that a lot of people like, but he's also, like, the, the biggest heel in the movie. So he's, he's still a really interesting character and, I, I guess, star, but he's also a heel in Star Wars, if you will. Yeah. That's true. I, I think it'll be interesting to see if they, you know, we start seeing footage of Jinder, you know, being touring India and getting, you know, the, the a champion's reception and then posting on his Instagram about, you know, what a great time it is for his family and this and that. You know, I always... Although WWE's got no schedule to no, go to India. No, they don't. The and and that was a big, you know, that's... I wrote a piece all about that, just basically saying, well, what does India provide for WWE? They don't give them live event revenue. They give them TV revenue, but that TV revenue is fixed, so it's not generating a lot. It's gener- i mean, it's generating a lot of TV revenue, and by the end of the contract, it will probably out-earn UK. But right now, it's in the twenty-some million dollar range, which is a decent piece of the pie. But by no means, it's you know one eighth of what WWE gets from the US marketplace. Um, and why do you think there's yeah, t- they run in so sparingly? I—I I, I wrote that it's, it's probably because of. Well, the economy, it sounds like a lot of people don't want to pay, don't want to buy tickets to go to live events. Maybe there's corruption associated with the venues. The Great Khali just, you know, according to General Mahal, the Great Great Khali was the main eventer of a show in India that drew like 60,000 people, I think, earlier this year. So my, my question would be, well, how many of those tickets were paid? Was there a lot of free attendance there or what was the deal? Well, and, and they've run a total of three times in the last 20 years. They ran, I think, 97. They ran in 2002. And then they ran in 2016. That's it. Th- those are the three times they ran there. And on one of those trips, there's like this horror story about how people got all sick. Yeah, Regal got incredibly ill, and like um, uh, Lance Storm got sick, and other people. And then and Regal in his book basically says, I think he had a heart problem that came up at the same time. But oh. for years, the the rumor always was that Regal was basically out because he got ill in India and couldn't get better. Uh, so it, and, and there was, I think, Ry- Ryback on his podcast. Because there's all this news about India and General Hall going on, he, he, you know, he, he must have been on that tour in January 2016 or something. Then when they went to India, and he's like, he, he basically just buried India and said it's, it's this, you know, this really poor country, and and there's, you know, not, nobody's got any money there, and the people who do have money, they're, they're definitely not going to watch fake fighting or you know, something like that. 
Well, and that's why I've I've kind of said Latin America. If you're talking about live events, Latin America's got so much more money available to it right now than India does. Uh, India is good for the pay TV market, and you should build a consumer market there. I think it's a great idea that they opened up the sold store and that they got a new GM there. And I think it's important to focus there, but the reality is they don't seem to have the ability to do much there right now, the way that the company's structured. So it's a fascinating play to say, let's get lots and lots of Facebook followers and get lots and lots of tweets and hits and Google Analytics. But we know that YouTube can tell where the, mon- where the, where the hits are coming from. So it's not like they're paying the same rate as a domestic hit. So it's it's really questionable to me sometimes about, you know, what it translates to, you know, compared to the real analytics of this world. Um, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. You looked at the Google analytics for WWE and for India and, you know, is this having an effect? Did the great Kali have an effect? What is the general correlation? What did you learn when you looked at it? Yeah, so I looked at Google Trends, which is a, is a totally public thing that anybody can look at. You just Google Google Trends. Um, so I looked at, for, first of all, let's look at the last uh, 60 days and look at interest for the world in WWE and interest just in India for WWE. And, uh, and you, you go back to like late March and you, and you bring it up to the present and WrestleMania is the peak for both the world and for India. And then you look at, well, look at the time when Jinder Mahal won the number of the tendership and actually interest was a little bit bigger for the world than it was for India. So India was, I guess you could say, below average. And uh, then when he won the title, uh, India's interest was, was still a little bit b- below average. Um, but then you look at... so. And so the average in this case is that if WrestleMania is like a 100, you're saying the peak for some of these other events might be higher, but then the Indian version of that is not nearly as high as, say, the peak was for WrestleMania. Correct? Right. Okay. So... So Jinder winning the title is like a 30, and WrestleMania is like a 100. But this stuff, these are just relative standardized numbers. Google doesn't give you any any real hard data. It doesn't give, give you anything that's actually you know quantitative. They, they give you stuff that's just a, a relative to whatever the peak is for the section of time that you're looking at, and they make that 100 and everything else on that timeline is held to that standard. So, so this stuff doesn't make a, a, t- a ton of sense uh, alone. So to try to put it in some context, I compared interest in Jinder Mahal to interest in the great Kali. So it's not just WWE interest. We're looking at, at interest in these individual people as, as TV stars or wrestlers or whatever they are. Um, and you look at uh, the great Kali's peak of interest was when he was just after he had, had been the world champion. He's going into an elimination chamber match in it was 2008. Um, he also had a big spike when he was on this Indian reality show called Big Boss. Um, before that, there was some big spikes when he when he beat the Undertaker and he really became you know a, a name for the first time. And when he won the, the world title uh, about a year after that, there's another big spike more closer to the present when he did. I guess he did this big in, injury angle in uh, in India for this CWE promotion that that he's uh, run shows with. He did a crazy right. press conference where, like, he went through a table and got bloodied yeah. up or something. And, and this is another thing Jinder Mahal talks about in the, in, when he did his interview on Talk is Jericho. He, he goes, he, like, he, they they put Kali, it's all work, but like, they put Kali in, in the ICU and media all over the country covered it. You know, apparently, Great Kali is this really recognizable star, this wrestling star in, in India. So anyway, you got all these big spikes for, for Kali. You look at Jinder Mahal's uh, W title win, and that's, like, that's at, like, the norm 
for for Kali when when there's no news about Kali. You know. To be fair, though, we should also say we're looking at in Google, we're looking at English words and these people. And in India, you know, there's always the possibility that it's oh. different well, search engines, <laughs> different words. But I think in general, I think this the analysis holds up. Yeah, well, I think when you I'm, I'm gonna have to take some time and look at this, but I think when you go into Google Trends and you pick out a word, um, so like I've done I've done this for like New Japan in the past. When you search for say Hiroshi Tanahashi, um, you you're looking at a topic, so it's not the same as ah. So you think so, it might actually be the translated version? So you're not just looking at a string of text. That's when, good. When I when I do Google Trends here, they they, they take a time. I don't know how it all works. There's sort of a a black box here, as George Perios would say. Sure, sure. Oh, I just remember. I just remember, for instance, when they were talking about the, you know, the 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 Green Revolution in Iran and whatnot, or in Egypt, and they were saying, you know, a lot of people are searching for English words on Twitter and coming up with trends. And then, don't you think a lot of these people are going to be speaking Farsi or Persian or yeah. Arabic? You know, like it, we're 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 looking in English for English results and then writing about it in English and saying, look at this. And there's always that yeah. risk that when you're in a non-English speaking country, and of course, as George says in the talk here, they asked him about localization, and George's answer was, we do well in English speaking countries, and in countries where a percent of the fans are WWE fans, and they speak English. And so like France, for instance, I bet you as a country, it's an enormous population, and yet I bet you WWE Network doesn't do very great there, because they don't necessarily do a ton of localization into French, to the point that it, it appeals widely to this to a big audience necessarily so you know there's those places france and brazil and and of course china in the future here where you know localization is probably gonna make a big deal yeah and i'm looking right now to see what the related topics are and i don't see anything that looks like it's in anything other than english the related queries yeah and i don't even know you know whether or not you know i think people would probably google wwe I, yeah. I think regardless whether it's Punjabi or Hindi or whatever, you're going to probably do WWE as WWE, but you know. And if you and if you're just considering that, like that's if you go to the article on Playful.com, um, if you just if you're just wondering about well, what was the difference in interest, how how did the, what was the pattern of interest for WWE across this time where Jinder Mahal you know, got this big push and became champion? There's, I would say, there's no real significant difference in the data that I'm looking at. Uh, there's no the the India line never goes above the worldwide line. Um, it's, so if anything, that would tell me that India was less interested than the rest of the world was in, in Jinder Mahal's push. Um, but when you, when you look at it, when you just look at India and compare Great Kali and Jinder Mahal, it makes it look like, well, yeah, India, you know, woke up about this guy and they maybe they see him as as something. But we're just in the early days here of his title reign, so it's something to watch as time goes on. Yeah, again, monetization of this is going to be unusual. Um, they talk about, you know, what's the purpose of any kind of content? And George says, well, it's got four purposes. We want to engage fans, bring in new fans, monetize directly through ads or subscriptions, or promote our tool to our fans of other things that you can do, like the network. And so maybe the argument is, hey, we're trying to get WWE Network subs in India. Maybe it's we're trying to bring in new fans in India because, you know, they read the Times of India, they hear there's a guy who does wrestling, and they, they want to watch our show. Maybe they monetize it because they can prove to their people that are paying for, uh, paying them twenty to thirty million dollars a year. Hey, Ten Sports in India, based with Sony. Look, I'm giving you guys all these eyeballs. Aren't I great? Uh, but ultimately, it's a black box. And and of course, 
you can't book to just create business decisions that are based on audience demographics. You know, that's never going to work. You got to connect with people and have that the right instincts. But we'll see over time what happens with that. But uh, I really enjoyed this talk from George. I I said if you got twenty minutes, go listen to this talk from George. It will be more worth it than listening to us talk about it or listening to somebody else try to third-hand describe a, a quote in the Observer that Dave pulled from my blog. So at least you're given proper credit. No, I wasn't. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess the, the the first item in the in the WWE section about about ICW in progress, which you probably got from a tweet from me. At least I was oh no, I wasn't giving credit for that either. But anyway. Anyhow, um, let's go back to our our topic list here, um, and just some of the other things that we wanted to touch on. Uh, what when do you think this the push for Jinder Mahal came? I know you you saw the argument that it, it it's May it's June now started in May, but it really started in April. Yeah, so this, this is not intentional cross-branding, I, I, I promise you, but uh, Sean Ross Sapp and, and Jimmy Van, they, they do this podcast on, on Fightful.com, and, and J- Jimmy Van did a lot of research, and he made the argument that if you look at the timeline of events here, you look at April 3rd, that's when the WVShop.in uh, store was launched, and so maybe they were, they were thinking, you know, they were really starting to move the gears about getting into India, I mean, not that they, they weren't before, but even more so. And you look at April 15th, according to Jinder Mahal and Talk is Jericho, uh, he was going to work Big Show at a house show, and Big Show says, hey, the office has, has got plans for you, and, and Big Show ends up letting it, letting Jinder body slam him and making him look strong and all this. Um, then, of course, April 19, he, he wins the SmackDown uh, number one contendership. Uh, the next day, uh, WWE announces that they've got a new general manager for India, Satish Unev. Sarvastava? Well, anyway. Um, on May 10th, uh, when the New Day was sent to Mumbai, to, I guess, to do some media while they're, while they're not wrestling yet. Um, and, of course, on, on May 22nd... Uh, is that correct? May 22nd was Sunday, and then this talk was on Monday, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Sorry, May 21st. May yeah. 21st, he won the title. Anyway, so it looks like... I mean, I guess the point that, that Jimmy Dan was trying to make, I think, is that well, look, this is this is a company that obviously was not like a long-term decision that was made six months ago or a year ago. This is just you know this is you know kind of classic Vince McMahon that you know oh okay let's do this yeah great idea let's and, and just let's let's you know overhaul everything we've got a new a new champion and and not a guy that we're going to take a few months to build up but a guy that we're going to take from being a, a pretty low mid carter you know who's losing almost every match and then we're going to have him you know be W champion within a little over a month. Well, and I, I even take it a day earlier, say April 2nd, WrestleMania, he basically got the rub to be in there with Gronk. You know, they did the whole angle where Gronk was pushing Jinder, and Jinder uh, was eliminated by Mojo Rawley to win. So it's like, there was a lot going on there where even as, as early as April 2nd, and then that April 3rd shop launch, which is really, it's it's the sold store in India, and it's that they... They basically are the part, the e-commerce partner that provide is doing the product handling in India. They talk about that in the business partner summit, which was also that same weekend. And so there was a lot of stuff about India that weekend. And so I think getting the shop launched on that same weekend as you had the other things going on makes sense. But um, yeah, I, I think there's a really good evidence that April was really the month that they kind of the light turned on and they said this is what we're doing. 
And, um, you know, Jinder, just all these interviews where he talks about, you know, I used to job to El Torito. Uh, now Vince McMahon wants to talk to me. And it's classic Vince. You know, Colin Delaney talked all about it. When Vince gets hot on you, he gets really hot. He's really interested in you. And for about six to eight weeks, you're the thing. And then Vince gets distracted. And then the next thing you know, it's the next thing, the next person. So it would be really fascinating to see, you know, does does Jinder stay at the top rank here? Or does Jinder, you know, kind of wither and fall very quickly? Yeah, I mean, we'll see. There's going to be a, a... They're going to have a match on SmackDown. I think they're going to have a match on the following pay-per-view. But who knows? I Like I said before, I mean, we could... It's it's. I feel like it's kind of a fool's errand to sit here and try to predict the booking of WB for the most part. Uh, who knows what 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 that man with with such a low attention span will will do next? Well, yeah, Ty Tyne Bing is a uh, is just waiting in the wings right now. He'll be he'll be WB champion next probably. I think yeah. I, I said that to somebody who asked me about it. Like, what do you what, so what do you think about you know, Jinder Mahal uh, winning the title? And you know, and I, I this is some this is one of my students at the at the school, and I and I said, well, you know, they're really trying to break into India, so. You know, they're, they're trying to find, they want somebody who's, who can be a champion, who's, who's of Indian descent, and, and you know, they're, they're eventually going to do the same thing in China, although China's a harder market to break into, and, and uh, oh, oh, yeah, that guy, who, there's a Chinese guy who was in the, in the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal, he's like, yeah, he'll, he'll be W champion someday, probably, or some, someone from China I've, within the next 10 years. Well, they just years. hired another 10 people, so... I, I doubt Tin Bing is going to be the guy, but I think maybe they'll find the right one. And, and they've even got some women. And the same with India. I think sometimes the, the opportunities in some of these countries might even be uh, from a female angle, where mm-hmm. I think the size differences is much easier to kind of um, conquer, right? Because with the guys, we know what kind of jacked up guys you need. And so you end up with the giants and the really big guys. But I think with the women, you have a better shot at especially with all these Japanese women they're bringing in. It just goes to prove, you know, I think there's a lot more tolerance for a variety of sizes, body types, and talent that might come through. So I wouldn't be surprised if the first big superstar from China was a woman. And even if the first big actual Indian superstar of this new generation was a woman. Yeah. And, and if their physiques just become amazing within, you know, a half a year or so, that. That doesn't hurt either. Does not hurt. Uh, talk to me about Flow Slam. Uh, the prices going up here. You're talking about that kind of the limit go- that WWE has, which is to say, ten dollars a month is what WWE is. How can you possibly be offering better content and more availability than WWE? And Flow Slam going all the way up to thirty per month. Right. So they have. There's two two ways that you can subscribe to Flow Slam. You can pay uh, $150 up front, and then you're subscribed for the year. You pay that all in one lump sum, though, that divides out to $12.50 per month. Or you can pay, up until a few days ago, you could pay $20 a month on a recurring basis for Flow Slam. And, but a few days ago, they, they raised the price to $30 per month. Um, yeah, and then, like we're saying, you know, just from a, you know, not necessarily well-informed consumer, you know, mindset, like, why am I going to pay $30 a month for... For something that that's not as high profile, that's not as high quality. I mean, the wrestling's very good in Evolve, but the production values certainly aren't. The venues are certainly far smaller. Um, and even I, Dave I, Meltzer was talking about how a company like Flow Slam should be sending out wrestling wrestling media releases all the time to say, "Hey, we're doing this event. This is the exciting thing. Get people excited." 
And they're doing a pretty poor job of that, where he's like, Evolve promotes Evolve, but next to, or WWN promotes WWN stuff. But next to that, you don't often get information from these people saying, hey, this is the events we're running this weekend, and, you know, really pushing it in a way that that could be out there. And, you know, it's not easy being a social media manager. I get that. I'm I'm trying to promote my improv company right now, and I'm failing miserably at it. And so I recognize this is not a simple thing to do. But at the same time, I'm not charging people $30 to come to my shows, and uh, I'm not trying to bring people in to watch lots of improv shows from around the world. I'm just trying to promote my one and I recognize how tough it can be, but, you know, sometimes it goes back to basics here where it's like to get your word out, you got to DDP yourself, man. Yeah, I mean, I don't know everything about what their, what their you know, work uh, culture is like, but I, I feel like because it's, it's obviously Flow Slam is a, is a you know, a, a vertical within Flow Sports. Flow Sports is this company that puts out, you know, that allows you to subscribe to all these niche sports. Um, I think they have a lot of people who work across different verticals, so maybe they don't have somebody who's really smart about wrestling and about, and about how to promote wrestling. Um, and like a lot of people have said, and I agree with the, and I don't know if it's financially viable, but to make this thing really popular, and what they needed was more than just Evolve. Evolve is great, Evolve is, is nice, but it's not the centerpiece I think that they needed. Um, we're talking about like like the company's dead already, but they're not. Um, but I think they needed, you know, the New Japan, the in, Ring of Honor, in, 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 in an ideal world. Yeah, they needed New Japan, Ring of Honor, CMLL. If they could have got them, apparently yeah. they're they're hooked up with WWE now. Progress, ICW, uh, if not that, I mean, Rev Pro still out there doing something. Who knows what? Um, and then there's a handful of other indies, you know, around the country. AEW in Chicago, um, AIW in Cleveland, Beyond in the New England area. Yeah, but um, it's it's one of those where you you know. You can talk about how do you enter a marketplace, and a lot of times slow and steady is not the way to go. A lot of times it's better to buy a competitor and then enter the marketplace and then flood it with content or flood it with patience. So, you know, the the idea here is that you don't want to just come in and say, I'm going to do as big as the other company was. You want to come in and be twice as big, and that's tough to do. And it takes resources and takes investment and takes all these things to do that. But I don't know if building it up by block A and adding block A to block B and block B to block C is enough. You kind of sometimes need to come in and have an entire, you know, laundry basket full of Legos uh, to make it work. That was okay. We've got evolved. What do we need progress for? What do we What do we need? Maybe Ring of Honor is bigger, but what do, what do we need AEW for if we've already got evolved? Because the people who who like wrestling enough. Are gonna, you know, are gonna subscribe to us for Evolve, and if we add these other brands, I think their mentality was we're not necessarily gonna add a lot of subscribers, um, and I think they're kind of satisfied with, you know, I don't know, satisfied, but they felt that, well, if, if people are aware of us, they should want to subscribe, right? And I think maybe something that they didn't focus on and think about enough was that wrestling fans, it's not just enough that they're aware of you. I mean, wrestling fans, especially the hardcore fans, which is the, the key you know, audience for Flow Slam, are, are very savvy. I mean, they're, they're very jaded. They can be very cynical uh, in, in, in this regard, but considering Flow Slam, because you look at the recent history of iPay-per-views, and it, and it hasn't been very nice. There's been a lot of times where wrestling fans have been burned on iPay-per-views or where you know, Ring of Honor did, a, did an iPay-per-view once where I think the the stream died like in the right before the finish of the main event or right in the middle of the main event. And there's I'm sure there's other stories like that. Evolve still has 
or at least before they were on Flow Slam, still has streaming issues. And I think they've still had streaming issues while they've been on Flow Slam. So there's a, understandably, there's a lot of cynicism among this audience or among this market uh, about, well, is, is, is this company going to rip me off or going to screw me over? And not just that stuff, not just in, in, in terms of providing you with, you know, service, video service, but, you know, there, I think there's a lot of justified cynicism in that, you know, is this promotion going to do something stupid and, you know, make me feel insulted for paying for this and being a wrestling fan of it? And and if we think about the tiers here, you have kind of general streaming media. So that'd be like a YouTube. Then you have the general entertainment pay streaming media. That's like a Netflix. Then you have like a premium content general streaming like an HBO. Then you get to like a uh, wrestling, WWE. And then on the far side of that, then you get to something like Flow Slam, Flow Sports. Which yeah. is, you're getting to a niche where it's not even always that you're interested in consuming the subject, you're interested in consuming a certain title. And what's different about that is like, you know, if you go and read the complaint pages for Flow Slam, for actually for Flow Sports, you'll yeah. see a lot of, my daughter was doing a track and field event and I wanted to watch it. And so I signed up for this service and then they billed me over and over again. And so what you realize from that is that these are not people that are interested in watching cheerleading and track. They're interested in watching their kids perform in a very specific event. And it's like, that's the idea of saying, okay, we're going to give you access now to all these other elements in flow sports, which I think is interesting because I do think there are amateur wrestling fans who are also professional wrestling fans and who might never have said, I really want to go spend money on watching amateur wrestling, but it was an interest of mine at one point, and so I can go relive that, you know? get back into it. And so there will be some portion of those people, but they are probably the small minority. And the same yeah. thing with like the marching band fans. Do I think the marching band fans and the wrestling fans necessarily cross over? Who knows? I need date. I need Barrios's cohort data to say that. Yeah. Honestly, the I'm one bad. person who I could see making money out of this deal would be the WWE. Cause they would go to the flow slam and basically say, we'll give you $25,000 and you open up all your databases to us and we get to analyze who watched what to figure out what services are the best places for us to target so that, you know, next thing you know that the archery contest has tons of WWE network ads because that turns out to be the one crossover segment in this world or something. Yeah. And what they should look at is a, is an article that was published on playful.com some months ago, I think in December, uh, the, the pro wrestling familiarity and favorability survey, uh, I heard kinda, a, a WrestleNomics uh, uh, WrestleMatrician named uh, Brandon Thurston Howard wrote that one. Something to that effect, yeah. But I, I tried to look at, you know, what are the promotions that hardcore fans, and this is basically extracted from people on Twitter and on Squared Circle Reddit, uh, subreddit, that w what's their familiarity level and what's their favorability level of, of promotions? Because there's a lot of promotions that this audience is familiar with, such as TNA, and at the time when it existed, Global Force Wrestling and CZW, mainly those, that lots of people are aware of, aware of that company, but the ones that are aware of it don't, don't view it very favorably, you know? Yeah, it would awareness, be like, it would, it would almost be like if, not, if, you know, equal affinity. if Flow Slam got TNA on there, it would almost suggest that less people would subscribe to Flow Slam because they would feel dirtier giving money to TNA. Well, I think there's something to that. I think if, I think if they had signed on TNA, they, TNA is maybe less so now than it was a few months ago, but TNA is a toxic brand, and that's why they can't and, and haven't run house shows for years, 
they're, they're in India. Yeah, we didn't talked about this. They're in India right now as we record this. They're, they're taping TV, and I don't think they're charging anybody admission, and I don't think they're running any house shows in addition to these TV tapings. It's just... Well, yeah. you could argue they're making their money because they're not losing their money because they got the TV deal from India basically exactly. to go do this. And so they're getting paid basically to uh, fulfill their promises to go run shows and do this. But yes, exactly. Exactly right. And, and I think it's about opportunity cost, right? And, and so, once you take so, AJ Styles out of TNA, and AJ Styles in TNA wasn't a significant draw, but once you took AJ Styles out of TNA and put him into indie promotions that, that weren't on Spike TV or... Uh, Destination America is any promotions that had nothing but social media and whatever advertising they could afford to pay for, and he was drawing you know crowds of uh, of a, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand without CNA, which just tells me you know it's not just about the talent, it's about the brand, and lots of people like to say the brand is the draw today. It's not any one star in WWE or whatever promotion. And it's and it's the opportunity cost. People get upset about that. The idea that they would say. Why are you giving this money to TNA when you could have given it to AAW or whatever it would be? And you will see that kind of spiteful feeling sometimes with yeah. wrestling fans. Um, so yeah, I that's think that's how much we like. We love pro wrestling is that we want to see good work rewarded, and we and we're and we're very frustrated when when bad work is rewarded. Well, year after, you, year after year. well, you see it though with like the superhero movies, right? Like people get upset at Zack Snyder or someone for for directing films, and they'll say. Why did you give this franchise to this person and this is what they did with it where, versus what I wish they had done with it? So it's it's not uncommon to um, – Yeah, and it's just – but that, that idea of the opportunity cost of being that you ruined this because you spent it on this and you should have spent it on that. You do hear a lot of that from the wrestling fans. Um, ruined. Ruined. Uh, there are so many other topics we could talk about, but I don't want this to become uh, – we, we do not have the the – Lonza Rich uh, endurance uh, for well, today. They're not doing a podcast this weekend, so I, we may as well go five hours and, <laughs> and cover it for them. You know, I, I can sit here, I can read you all the book titles that are sitting next to me here. Uh, I can talk to you about how I have Tunisian Holiday, the book about Monty Python, Barbarians at the Gate, the book about the fall, fall of RJR Nabisco, and Chris Jericho's book sitting right next to me right here among many other books so if we do need to kill time i could always do that but i doubt that's what our listeners are asking for so what else we got we, well i was kind of curious if you want to do some quick hits here and maybe one of the quick hits you could talk about was just what's the latest on the youtube monetization changes i feel like this is going to be the the overarching theme for the first chapter of this uh podcast here which has been like the first four shows every week we talk about youtube monetization yeah i, I don't feel like there's a lot uh there's all just little little bits, you know, trickle out, and we're sort of waiting around to see is YouTube gonna, you know, rectify the situation, or are they just gonna leave it as it is? Um, is is something else gonna come up in its place that's gonna be anything like a replacement? Um, I'm skeptical that that it will. We've got things like IRW, which is we've talked about this before. It's Eric Bischoff's, uh, you know, video service where he wants to he wants to do AVOD and you know get all these promotions on with him. Um, then there's the Fight app, which is you know, taking some indie promotions on this in a similar way. It, it seems to be just AVOD, and they're, they they want to you know share advertising revenue again. This is probably the same thing that IRW wants to do. They want to you know, get you onto their their service or whatever and share the ad revenue with you, just like YouTube would. But like I don't know where they're going to get eyeballs from. And we listen to a lot of George Barrios here. I'm talking about eyeballs. 
But <laughs> I don't know where they're going to get the eyeballs from because you know, YouTube, YouTube is this thing that everybody knows and everybody uses. It's got you know, literally billions of users, um, and you've got all this other, you know, viral content on there. That's where everybody is. You know, they're yeah, on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, are you going to get? You're you know, Yahoo. You're Yahoo and, you know, Bing, and then there's Google. And then when you really think about, like, unless you get a state-owned company like Abadu in there, it's pretty hard to break into those kind of markets. And that's kind of where YouTube is, where, you know, it, it's it's a silly tip for me to even compare something like Yahoo to Google and then compare what you're talking about to YouTube. It's like right. it's infinitesimally smaller. It's like microscopic. Yeah, and um, and it's and, t- you're right. You need a a a critical mass of eyeballs. It's sort of it's sort of like in a, in, a, in a strange way. It's this sort of an analogy here to being on on pay TV to being on the USA Network. You want to be on this TV channel that has a really wide access. You know, it's in tons of people's homes. You know what I would do? Here's here's my pitch. I just came up with this. I would go to Dave and Brian, or go to Wade and uh, Bruce. I would go to one of these pro wrestling sites, and in a sense you could say that's what, what culture was doing, but just imagine if you could say, you get the Observer, and you get this video show that we produce here, and it was attached to it. Now, I know the way they think, they would never go with it, but, you, you know, but that it's that idea of just saying, like, you know, if you wanted, if you think about the 10,000 homes that are on, on New Japan World, right? And you thought about what percentage of those homes are also Wrestling Observer subscribers. Pretty high percentage. And so Probably. you could imagine that sort of, you know, that certain kind of crossover you could generate if you actually did have that connection there. Where you could yeah. actually partner with these few remaining dinosaurs of these newsletters or the subscription-based services that have created payroll paywalls. And then you were able to also say, okay, I want to do a video service that is also included with this and do it as a value-add and kind of bundle. And yeah, Or maybe if not the Observer or Torch sites, like those two sites, while, while they are, um, the Observer especially is, is the one that breaks a lot of the news and a lot of people you know, skim their news off of, those are not the most popular, they're not the most trafficked. That's a good like point. Yes. Wrestling news websites. So maybe maybe if you, you look up a Wrestling Inc. or a Wrestle Zone, because those are the two most visited wrestling news websites on the internet. But again, um, that's I mean, pro, we saw what culture pro wrestling, which has an enormous web presence. They also get <laughs> millions of views, and basically they argued that they only made forty four dollars from one point one million views of the Alberto Del Rio Alberto El Patron versus Rey Mysterio Jr. match that they did, and it was ninety eight percent less than what they would normally get. Now. That implies that they were only going to make, you know, what is it, uh, a couple thousand dollars off that match, which, as far as you and I calculate, there's no way you can fly those guys over and pay them uh, and make a profit on just that single match alone. Yeah, no, but, not not on that alone, but, I mean, a thousand dollars is pretty good. It'll, it'll cover their travel. I, mean, I don't know about to the UK, but... Yeah, but, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting just trying to say, you know, here's a good example of someone who did have the volume... And yeah. basically said we couldn't make it. The only thing I like is that sometimes there's such a difference, and we've talked about it before. There's a difference between free investment and putting your money where your mouth is, where a lot of people will watch YouTube clicks, but not a lot of people are willing to necessarily become WWE Network subscribers. And so the the willingness to watch a YouTube clip doesn't mean that you are suddenly willing to to give your own money and support something. And so at least paywall sites, I can say, you at least have a built-in group of people willing to do that. Now, the biggest problem is I've seen the Observer people flip their lid whenever there's a price change of any sort. 
And so everything then suddenly would get blamed on the fact that, you know, you're paying for this video service that 99% of the people don't want. Uh, right. and, when, well, and well, they would argue that maybe that's just a vocal minority. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, everyone wants Bab and Sack reviews, but uh, <laughs> you can't always get what you want. Oh, man. Uh, um, but, yeah, like you said, I think that's – it's really – it, it would be helpful to a to a video service to a wrestling video service to have a you know a platform where it's they don't have to teach somebody a new habit you know they don't have to you know teach somebody to get an Apple TV or to to start subscribing to but, uh, to but some service. What's amazing when you think about it is think about the reach of Lucha Underground, right? So obscure television channel, not in all these homes, number of people watching it. And then put that up against what any of these video services we're talking about, and just like, you Which know, underground, underground does about a hundred thousand on probably on a good episode. I think they do more than that, don't they? Or you were checking the ratings better than I was, so maybe that's right. But I just mean like, you know, you would love to get a hundred thousand true eyeballs on a product delivered somewhere, right? And Lucha Underground at least can say, you know, we do have a revenue source that's coming from it and just that scale is pretty tough when it gets to production and scale and everything so it, it's interesting where it, it's a really good example of that old media meets the old the new media in terms of would you rather be on television with a tiny wrestling company or would you rather be on uh the internet with a tiny wrestling company yeah it looks like season premiere of lucha underground this past september did a total of 134,000 viewers. Now, that may be a combination of two airings. So that may be why I'm thinking 100,000, because probably on one no, airing... No, you're, you're probably right. And I remember at one point they were getting an enormous number for their Spanish-language airings versus their... On, when they were on Unimas, Unimas had a far bigger uh, you know, yeah. distribution. and far more homes than El Rey is. So uh, lastly, I just want you to talk a little bit to your time as a resource comment. Uh, maybe we can kind of close out the show with your thoughts on that. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how deep I can get here. So, so, so I think I think it was while the the last WWE pay per view was was on. You know, some people on Twitter are complaining like, why do I have to watch these? You know, they run all these ads for whatever show. I don't know, table table for three or whatever it is. Uh, you know, because they want you to, they're trying to push you to watch this show. It's like, well, if I'm the only reason I'm seeing this right now is because I am a W Network subscriber. So, like, why are they telling me about this this service that I already pay for? And if you think about it, well, one of the reasons they might be doing that, and the main reason why they might be doing that, is because W executives, as, as we, you know, found out uh, in their in their proxy statement uh, a few months ago, W network W executives are, are bonused based on not necessarily how many subscribers they add to the network, but based on how much time the average user spends watching the W network. Now they probably would would get a higher bonus because they got other things, you know, it. it Related to their bonus, like you know, revenue. So if there's a ton more WNR subscribers, they're probably going to get a higher bonus. But, but just to note that one of the reason, one of the one of the things that they're incentivized on is getting people to watch more stuff. And even we've got other stuff in here, like like brand strength, which is whatever this means. Certain television ratings. Well, and so, and net promoter score is another one. And net promoter score is defined as. Essentially, you take you you kind of survey your people, and they give you high scores and low scores, and you have to reach a certain percentage of people saying they would recommend them to other people and whatnot. It's a whole methodology. Uh, I went through it one time when I worked for a law firm. But okay. what I learned about it is essentially, yeah, you want to create a good impression, right? 
And so I do think sometimes it's probably better if your WWE Network fans are thinking, yeah, I really enjoyed that episode of uh, Table for Three, rather than I really did not enjoy that last pay-per-view I watched. And so I do think there's some value to it where they were saying basically their ability to get you to be sticky is probably around the idea that if we keep showing you content where you think, oh, I want to see that, I'll put on my watch list. Oh, I want to see that, I can, I want to dive into that. It's better than... Yeah. The more you use a product, the less you less likely you are to stop buying that product. Exactly, how sticky it gets, exactly. So I, I agree with you completely there, which is they're basically knowing that, as they said, they, they straight, George straight up says it, when we started the network, we thought it was for the pay-per-views. We also know that the pay-per-views are the number one thing that people watch. That's the reason people have the WWE Network. On top so of watch, that... Watch you to retain, so the reason why they do all these commercials for their other network shows during the pay-per-views especially during the pay-per-views because that's the time that the most people are watching because they want you to watch that stuff because if you watch that stuff the more time you spend watching this w network the less likely you're going to be to cancel but um, at the on the flip side i do think some of it just goes to just basic production which is you want to have some kind of video you can roll you want to have ad breaks you want to have these things that normal sports have and when you don't have them it's tough to you know kind of give people that opportunity to file through everything. And so it's important to kind of give people that break between things and also give the production crew a chance to reset and do whatever. And so it's it's not a problem to have a fake commercial here and there. I can get that it drives some people nuts, but I I think you should always be promoting why the stuff that you, especially the, the stuff that they're producing themselves, because good God, they're spending a lot of money on producing their own content. And uh, that's the one thing more analysts should be calling them out on right now is just the absurd amount of money they're spending on WWE Network content. And the question about really how sticky it is and how valuable it is. And, you know, the argument always is, is they do it because it's valuable, but I'm always a little dubious on um, the belief that they only do things that are profitable and valuable to them. Hence, my continued rant against the WWE Studios model. <laughs> I guess the argument about, well, look at how much they're spending probably on the network and, and, and on all this additional programming. Uh, whereas, you know, is all this additional programming really adding a lot of subscribers? Maybe not. And all this money that they're spending to to do all this programming, if they didn't spend all that money, the network would be more profitable. And that's one thing that I've looked at is like, well, look, let's look at how profitable the network is. How much how much weed the, does it make per quarter or per year? And compare that to, I, I, I tried I did an article once where I tried to figure out, well, let's use Google metrics to predict if there was no network, how many pay-per-view buys would they be doing? And well, the conclusion that I came to is that they would be more profitable today if they hadn't launched the network or at least yeah, they, the company would be more profitable. And and um, I would argue at any moment they could become 10 to $20 million more profitable if they yeah. decided to slash their content costs. Now, yeah. the fact that they just took out $100 million in loans and we still don't know what they want to use it for is just such a big question mark to me because that just says, you know, you're trouble paying your dividend, but you could cut costs here, but instead you're just going to do finance it through, you know, cheap, cheap money interesting um it shows some belief in yourself and the reality is just like they said 2019 is going to be a cliff for them because they have uk us and india media deals all coming up that year and that's the engine of growth right now for this company has been these tv deals and so they're hoping that they can convert this time and energy that they put into people on these digital platforms and on the social platforms into revenue down the line because they are so engaged on twitter and whatnot 
But, you know, wh whatever says you're not going to be the next Pokemon Go, where you explode and then you contract. And so you always have to be careful by saying, you know, yeah. we're going to be in this trend, we're going to do this right. And you can get burned. You really can get burned in the end. Yeah, and I think there's, it's not a bad idea to, and I think maybe this is what, you know, a lot of media companies might be, might be thinking. We want more of your time, you know. We don't just necessarily want you to buy our product, but the more of your time we get, in the end, the more, more of uh, our product we're going to be able to sell you. And I don't know, just thinking about this stuff got me to, to think that, well, I mean, look at the, the three different kinds of media that we consume, which I think accounts for most of it, and that there's audio, there's video, and, and then you can read stuff, right? And you look at, well, how much time does, or how much attention does it cost me to consume audio? When, when I listen to podcasts, I listen to podcasts sometimes at work or while I'm driving, like they don't require my entire attention. So, so like when somebody asks me to, to, uh, to watch a video or to consume a, a certain media product, uh, I think there's not just, not just a subscriber fee that goes along with it or whatever. I think there's, it's like, is this going to be worth my time kind of question. Well, which is so, why I don't watch a lot of WWE pay-per-view. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, so I think the, the, this is the point that I'm trying to make. is that, So audio has the lowest cost because I can do all sorts of stuff while I listen to podcasts or while I listen to music or whatever. Uh, and I think video, for the most part, has a medium cost because it doesn't. I don't necessarily have to be giving it my full attention. And in fact, in my case, I often don't give it my full attention when I consume video media. Um, but if I have to read something like that, that's when you're asking me to, to, to give the most. And that's where you're asking me to essentially pay with my time. Like, if you want me to read something that's, you know, uh, 5,000 words, that's going to require a lot of my time, and that's going to require all of my attention. I'm not going to be able to do something else while I read. I haven't learned that talent yet. So. And, and, and so this says to me that I should break in to the mind of Brandon by offering a new talking point based only on smells, which has mm. the lowest cost. Yeah, that's a good point. Is, is anybody monetizing smells yet, though? <laughs> I think we just figured out the new WrestleNomics that's, venture that's here. That's food. Okay. Wait a minute. No, yeah. There's more yeah, exactly. Here. Here, yeah. we, here we go. This is turning into like a Marshall McLuhan podcast. But yeah, like smell. So when you eat something or you, or you, or you I mean, there, there are, I don't know. That, that's food. Yeah. And I can do lots of other stuff while I eat, you know. So is that more of a burden or less of a burden than all you? Well, what's sure. interesting is <laughs> it, when you think about it in a certain sense, the different parts of your brain that are being engaged versus audio versus, say, eating, where you can almost eat and still be fully engaged, you know, have a conversation with someone over dinner versus, you know, audio. For me, I actually am very easily distracted by podcasts while I'm working. And so I don't often, often listen to podcasts while I work because I can't think, process the audio. I can process it, it, music, it but not audio. Yeah. It depends on how much actual thought, I guess, is involved in whatever you're doing at the moment. You know, listening to something while you're driving a car is not very hard at all. No, and I do a lot of that. That's a very good point. That That's probably the, the closest analogy to the eating. But I'm just mm -hmm. saying, we, if we could figure out how to have, instead of podcasts, but smell casts, you know, we <laughs> could we could be the next hot thing. Someday there will be smell casts. Well, we'll talk to uh, uh, George about that one next time. Maybe that's our pitch to get in, is uh, we'll, we'll put smell casts on our resume and see what he says. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's close, close it up right here just to say, uh, WrestleNomics Radio is brought to you by Chris Harrington, Brandon Howard. We are a member of the Voices of Wrestling Network of Podcasts. Uh, you can always find them at Voices 
of wrestling.com or voices wrestling on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Mukigana. Brandon, what is your Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Brandon Thurston, uh, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-T-H-U-R-S-T-O-N. You can also read my stuff at Fightful.com where I write all my articles exclusively for. Uh, again, you can go to the features section on Fightful.com and find Brandon Howard and you can find everything that I've written lately. If you're interested in reading the transcript of this George Berrios uh, meeting that he had, go to WrestleNomics.com, and that will take you to my, my website. You can also go to IndeedWrestling.com, and you'll see some of the legal documents I put up. I recently put up a, uh, a timeline of all the, uh, the years of different WWE wrestling contracts that I have found so far. Do you know how many years I have? Uh, I, I, I saw it. I don't know if... Going back to the mid nine, you, you have but Bixer's. The, or I don't know if you found it or Bix found it, but like there's there's the Warrior contract going back to like ninety one or something. Right? Oh, it's yeah. earlier than that. Eighty five, I have oh, Matt wow. Osborne. Eighty seven, wow. I have Warrior. Ninety two, I've got Warrior. Ninety two, I've got Doink. Matt Osborne again. Ninety three, I've got Johnny Polo's uh, WWF contract, brand new that just came in uh, recently. Then oh, wow. ninety three, we got Mabel's contract. Uh, 96 is Jim Ross, 96 is Owen Hart, 96 is Owen is is uh, Ultimate Warrior, 99 is uh, Viscera, 2000 is Vince, 2000 is Shane, 2000 is Linda, 2000 is uh, Scott Levy, Raven, 2000 is Russ McCullough, who is a, a indie guy who's suing in the CT case, 2001 is Mike Sanders, 2001 is Chavo, 2002 is Chris uh, Canyon, 2003 is Brock, 2003 is Renee uh, Dupree, 2004 is Luther Reigns. 2004 is uh, Ryan Sakota. 2004 is Big Daddy V. That's right. We've got all the generations of Nelson Fraser Jr. <laughs> uh, 2004 is Chavo. 2005 is Big Vito. 2007 is yet another Nelson Fraser contract. Uh, 2010 is Chavo. 2011 is Vince. 2011 is uh, Evan Singleton. 2012 is Triple H. And 2013 is Stephanie McMahon. So we we got Has eighty five difference in the language of the contracts over all these years. Obviously, there's stuff probably related to new technology, but other than that, some fascinating. It it does change a lot. Like it's interesting to go back to like the Matt Osborne one, where you see the language about you know we'll pay you fifty dollars every time you're on television, and when that language kind of disappears, the language about when they're loaning people out and when they're not loaning people out. But it was amazing. I found a line from a contract, uh, a very recent contract, and when I Googled it, I came across a law paper that was written in the uh, early 90s that referenced a case that used um, the Mongols, <laughs> uh, which was a really old WWF team that Bill Eady was part of. I'm sorry, not Bill Eady, um, Ivan – oh, God, who was it? One of the Bolsheviks. Who am I thinking? Nikolai Volkov. Volkov, when he was a Mongol, his other partner, Guido Mongol uh, – not, there's Beppo and Guido were the two uh, Mongols. The other guy got into a lawsuit with somebody, and then during all of this, the WWF contract that he had at the time came up in, in the case, and this guy quoted it in, in this law paper that he wrote, and it was the same language that they were using in, like, 2014. I was like, whoa, this is amazing. So I actually found this lawyer, the guy who wrote the paper, and, like, was bugging him on Twitter to be like, do you still have this? Because I cannot find this court filing from the 80s where this was filed in. Because it was one of the first times that, like, a, a pro wrestling contract in modern times that it had been filed. So some of this language, yeah, goes all the way back to 85, and you're going to see the same stuff. And some of it has changed dramatically when it comes to, of course, merchandising and video products like you mentioned and whatnot. 
So uh, it's really intriguing stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I just I felt like bragging a little bit about how many contracts we've collected <laughs> here. But you know, it's it's almost thirty years of contracts, and I have probably more than half those years filled. So it's yeah. a, a fun resource for anybody else looking, and that's the latest thing I've been updating on on IndeedWrestling.com. And, and now we've got even parts of Matt Hardy's Impact or TNA contract. Yeah, yeah, and so I included that. I have Matt Hardy and I have uh, Conan's TNA contracts are the two people that have released it. So uh, Have we ever seen a Ring of Honor contract? I have never seen a Ring of Honor contract. I would love to see one. So if you're interested in tampering with your contract, please send it to me. <laughs> uh, Mr. at gmail.com. That is right, yes. Uh, or you can email us both at the show at IndeedWrestling at gmail.com. It really goes to the same place, but uh, all the best. Well, uh, this has been fun. Uh, I will talk to you again soon, Brandon. Okay, see ya. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.